Hello, welcome to another meeting of the Corona Committee. It's um, number 145 and it's called Degrees of Shades of Collusion. And of course, it is a take on Shades of Grey, a film that I haven't really seen, but I've heard a lot about it. And um, we were thinking we really are dealing with Shades of Collusion here, i.e. different degrees of intrigues, of um, backhaul agreements. And we would like to shine a light on this, on what is going down here. So, we will look at different aspects today. So, let me uh, tell you what we're looking at today. We have lawyer and economist Renate Holzeisen with us, who is uh, reporting on her latest annulment actions on uh, admission, uh, on, on approval of uh, communarity and spikebacks, uh, which she filed at the uh, ECG last week. She's a very committed colleague who is. Uh, active at the highest levels there, taking action to uh, follow up on all those questions rising, arising uh, from a legal point of view, uh, particularly in uh, the context of the approval of the va so-called vaccines. She's particularly active in Italy. Then we have an um, independent expert for vaccination procedures and vaccination damage. He speaks about vaccination uh, complications, how they're recognized how often they are reported and what experience he had with them in his practice even before 2020. We tend to forget that, but even before 2020, there were people who had a critical view of vaccines and uh, there were uh, numerous, and there are numerous, adverse effects uh, that are relatively problematic that uh, we um, don't normally consider right now. And I would like to make this um, side comment uh, when I was a fashion designer um, and when I did that in a very intensive way, shall we say, I had a knitter on my staff who had uh, worked as a, a pediatric nurse uh, previously, uh, speaking um, particularly with um, children with vaccination damages. And she um, said that, uh, she told me at the time that she didn't work in that field anymore because she observed too many um, adverse effects with children. So that's anecdotal only. And then we will spiel an expert uh, um, who can take a look at the Paul Ehrlich Institute, um, the vaccination documentation and the experience there. Then we have a funeral speaker and former radio journalist who will share his experience of censorship and the narrowing down of the corridor of opinion, who has gained um, in, um, uh, a lot of experience as a freelance contributor to various radio um, editorial offices and his recent experiences as a funeral speaker, especially since the launch of the injection campaign. Uh, we had funeral, we had undertakers with us uh, twice um, by now, um, telling us about what he was able to observe among the deceased. And it's interesting to hear what happened in the meantime. And of course, he can tell us something about um, the numbers and any um, special uh, events. And then, last but not least, we have the former managing director and member of the board of directors of a major Wall Street investment bank. And she'll speak about the real life equivalent of the Iron Bank of Bravos, so that is a uh, fic uh, fictional bank in the Game of Thrones. 
namely the Bank of International Settlement, based in Switzerland, is not so well known, whose board of uh, directors enjoys far-reaching, legally guaranteed immunities and plays a central role in the introduction of uh, central bank digital currencies, i.e. the digital currencies um, in the West and the global upheaval that we're witnessing here. So I think there's a lot of um, interesting stuff coming down. Um, we had planned uh, Dr. David Jungblut having with us today. Unfortunately, he couldn't make it, uh, but he will be with us um, shortly again. Then Wolfgang Wodak will join us uh, via Zoom later on. But I would like to say a few preliminary remarks. First of all, I would like to present to you another step of our archive. I think two or three weeks ago I mentioned this, I introduced that, uh, a new type of activity, a documentation of all our meetings so that they can be viewed on uh, the internet in a written form as well, which is important. So if you are working on documentation, for instance, and you want to write an expert uh, opinion um, or something similar, um, you can download it and you don't have to listen to all the individual uh, meetings. Um, instead, you can just um, search for buzzwords. Um, um, that's why I would like to point out this live format um, that many experts use for back on. It's very important because we have a body of knowledge here which is inexistent anywhere else or hasn't been um, in existence before. And at the same time, I think that the live stream and the Zoom is also very important that we can document that's the way it was and they knew and then somebody can be quoted even, and there is no um, editing, and we, are, we cut out anything that doesn't fit our narrative. No, we, it's just one-to-one. -one, um, so all the things, uh, the, the uh, costs that we made transparent earlier, um, that is one of the things that we spend our, spent our money on. We've interviewed far above 500 experts so far. Maybe I can ask Corvin to uh, show us what the archive looks like. I can see it on the small screen, not on the large screen yet. It would be nice if that uh, could be shown as well. Then I could explain it more easily. Otherwise, I'll just get started so you um, get an overview. So you have the Corona Archive. You can find it under corona-ausschuss.org slash archiv, not archive, without the E in German. And then uh, you know that you're on the right page, on the right website. On the left um, panel, you have this column where you um, see the various participants, the transcripts. So that is the orientation list. Now, if you pan down to all pages, you can see here um, the individual meetings that are linked here according to date, number and title, so that you can find them again. Maybe you remember one title or uh, you don't really know when a um, 
interview took place and so the transcript has been um, archived for all meetings. Maybe we can go and show those transcripts. So they are automated transcripts. So we used a computer program to transcribe all these things. And it's a bit crude, of course. So the uh, individual paragraphs are missing some misunderstandings. Um, by the AI, which doesn't work as well as the human brain yet. And so uh, some things are difficult to understand. Um, and I'm not sure if there's any uh, time scale uh, included yet. So um, we've been contacted by a number of, uh, by a lot of people who would like to get involved here. It would be good to have this. So if you can um, take one of those transcripts and uh, listen to the um, uh, the meeting itself, and then post edit it, and there's a guideline on how to do that. Uh, for instance, if uh, you know or uh, people who are, uh, know shorthand. They do take down what's being said, um, but they do edit it a bit. Uh, the um, bots and ers and ums are left out. And so if uh, somebody corrects themselves, then of course you can uh, leave that out. That'll be a guideline from us. So we're, we'd be happy to have more people contacting us, uh, indicating their interest. Um, you could uh, uh, contact us on uh, I think it's uh, at uh, Corbin at Corona uh, uh, dash Ausschuss. No, it's Archiv dash Corona dot Ausschuss. Uh, no, Corona uh, dot Ausschuss dot de. Corona dash Ausschuss dot de. Sorry. So if we go back to the transcripts, I have to say. Everything has been logged yet, except um, uh, meeting 11. That's one that uh, we haven't online now, not because uh, there were uh, strange um, things in it, um, but because there was a misunderstanding by one of the persons invited at the time. It was an um, oral invitation, and uh, the person um, thought that it was not uh, online, that it was internal, and so we were thinking of how to handle this now, so that we can anonymize it um, and we can show it because the statements are still valid, but that's why it's not yet been available in the archive. Then we've um, filled in all the participants, all participants. Uh, can be found here under this category, and they are listed by name here. Um, right now, about 140 of them have been entered already, and we have the lists. That's quite impressive, and it will be, of course, a lot more when we've all the 500 in this um, list. And then you can just click on a name, and you'll see a, a short profile. is very brief right now, but we might. Um, give more detail on the person. Um, we'll still have to discuss this, whether we do that or whether we just um, 
include a link to a uh, Wikipedia version, our own Wikipedia version, that we might link to, or whether we will have additional information in this category. And if we click on here, um, then we can see here where did all the people participate, in which meetings, and then the list comes up, and you will be able to see um, where they participated. That is the state of things right now. I'm very happy that this is moving on. My dream would be to publish it all in the form of a booklet. I would hope to do that at our um, at, at um, cost price, and then we would have uh, one of the most extensive documentations. I don't know whether it's a uh, monstrous brochure. Um, it would be good if you could have it at home. Um, it would be great if uh, the largest number of uh, people possible would have it at home, because it would then be um, secured as information um, with the sources. So thanks a lot for the work done so far. I hope that it keeps growing and blossoming. It's really important, I think. And I have to say that we still depend on your support, dear um, viewers. And um, if you uh, wish to support us in our activities, that I think is really very important also for posterity and um, for historians, for lawyers, of course, uh, for patients, for physicians, and also for society as a whole. So I'd be very happy if you could uh, keep supporting us financially. Uh, if you can, and if you um, start um, supporting us, if you can, because without any funds, we can't achieve anything. So we'd be very happy. We are a charitable organization by now, officially recognized, uh, this new foundation that we have established. And so you can actually uh, give us more generous um, donations, you can actually write it off taxes up to 300 euro. You can actually do that without any proof. You can, of course, write it off um, tax up to 300 euro. And if you want to have a, um, a receipt, um, then let us know and we can issue such a donation receipt, so-called donation receipt. Uh, that's what I would like to uh, say at this point, I think. Let me briefly think about it. I think that's it. That was all that I had to say here. And I would like to know if we now have Renate, Dr. Renate Holzeisen, the lawyer and economist uh, from Italy, if we have her in the Zoom yet. Yes, I'm right here in the Zoom. Hi. Okay. Hello. Great. I can see that you're sitting in front of a very stylish wallpaper. That is very nice, um, design-wise now to say. Um, it's good to have you back. Maybe you could briefly um, introduce yourself for those who haven't seen you before. And I'm really curious to see what is happening on the legal front. Yeah, with pleasure. So I'm a lawyer and economist at the same time, and I therefore look at all of this 
crazy development from different angles, also from statistical, mathematical points of view. And I've been able to look through it all and see how irrational, how crazy it has all been. And all of these uh, uh, COVID-19 or infection figures that were presented, uh, it was obvious for me how wrong everything was. So I um, help company, I companies, uh, I'm an, an expert in corporate law, and uh, I particularly focus on pharmaceutical law. I started with that since 2020, when it became clear that the so-called COVID-19 uh, vaccines were going to be uh, churned out into the market for the use on everybody. And especially in Italy, uh, it was a very rigorous authoritarian way that these measures were implemented. and. Uh, then I uh, focused very intensely on the defense uh, of uh, the basic fundamental rights and liberties that were, of course, compromised because of this uh, mandate to get vaccinated. And Italy has been the toughest uh, country when it came to the mandatory vaccination and mandatory use of masks and so on. And then very quickly, I got in touch with you people. And since we established contact because of my international activities in this field, I'm also a member of Children's Fast Defense Europe and I work very intensely with colleagues, Philip Groß in Switzerland. And unfortunately, even now, there is a lot for us to do because it's not as you may think or many people think that we are past the peak and past the bad phase of our lives, but rather if we do not really defend ourselves with everything that we have at our disposal, we will effectively need to fear even worse than what we've had. Amongst other things, uh, this is shown by the criminal uh, activities in correlation with the COVID vaccines that uh, before had a conditional approval, but now have got the real approval. Okay, thank you very much. Now you initiated two new pleas for annulment. I think um, they um, refer to the um, latest version of approval. Yes, um, exactly. And uh, in their general activity, it went to that extent that those conditions that EMA, the European Commission, was uh, first given in a conditional manner for the approval of um, the vaccines so that these vaccines were actually brought to market. And 
what it is is that uh, certain clinical studies to be carried out that even that condition was simply not taken anymore so the clinical studies basically did not take place they weren't carried out and i will explain why they were not conducted and under these conditions, um, the first authorizations were granted for these uh, experimental substances based on gen technology was just like that turned into a, an approval without any condition, what's that? And that's how uh, this uh, scene in the European pharmaceutical register switch to so from conditional to unconditional approval when you saw that it was obvious that we really needed to try to uh, legitimize our action as eu citizens right through the second court of appeals and we assume that we here have to do with a clear character of a so-called decree, something I don't want to get into detail with at this moment, but uh, they had that type of character. And so we as EU citizens are in a position that we may take legal action. So, and the two pleas for annulment the, for the so-called standard approval, not the conditional approval from Comovatis, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Spike Vax by Moderna, for um, father of minor children, I did this on his behalf, because the argument is that their mother, uh, before the national Italian courts was able to get the right to have the kids vaccinated against the will of the father. And even though he made uh, a plea to the courts um, trying to see to what extent the EU law would interfere here for the approval of this substance for children. So at the European Court of uh, Justice, uh, this was uh, questioned to see um, the national courts up until uh, the final stage did not refer to it. So that is a firm proof that the integrated um, legal protection system for us, the European citizens, uh, in such an important point when it comes to our life, our health, is not functioning. And I'm sure uh, some of the spectators will remember that at the very beginning we tried with these pleas for uh, annulment against the conditional approval uh, of all four COVID-19 vaccines, Moderna, COVID-19, now it's Spikevax, uh, AstraZeneca, and of course Johnson & Johnson. And the EU courts 
at the first level, uh, then uh, said no, it wasn't uh, applicable, because they thought it was something that had to be done at the uh, level of the national courts and would then have to be referred to the European Court of Justice at the very end. So we now go through the character of regulations uh, of these um, findings um, and therefore go to the second instance of the European Court of Justice. Because if that is something that is being approved, that such uh, organs uh, that, uh, you know, such as the EMA or other founds uh, are involved in criminal activities, and I cannot phrase it in any other way, uh, and I can't stop repeating it, how criminal their behavior was, uh, so that the fundamental principles of the European uh, law of pharmaceutics have been violated and uh, experimental substances have been used uh, that have led to um, death in many, many thousands of cases and in many more cases to irreversible damages. Uh, and then in the next wave, uh, with the possibility uh, proclaimed by the EU and also the WHO then to uh, implement a mandatory uh, vaccination and that we uh, definitely need to fight against. So, by putting in this plea for annulment, uh, we basically focused on four reasons for that action. The first one was that this subs these substances uh, as uh, have been approved as so-called um, vaccines, um, not taken into account that the EU regulator for that uh, substance that include uh, gene technology uh, is subject to much stricter provisions. And these stricter provisions have been, um, have not been applied on three different levels. And therefore, we think that with these uh, substances. These are uh, genetic materials and have to be named as such because they uh, fall within uh, the group of uh, genetic substances because uh, acid is being injected, which in the cell extraction then leads to the production of the spike protein. Now, it could be, of course, that you say, well, but it's only a transient production, it's not permanent. But then we say, yes, that's true, but there is the definition of a, a genetically engineered therapeutic medication for uh, the manipulation of the cell function. And if we only have the change of the cell function, even if it's only temporary, you may have serious doubts on that. Because we know from studies that 
in many cases, the spike protein, even after many weeks, has been shown. So we see now very clearly uh, that the duration of the production of this spike proteins, which is bad for our body, it's synthetic, it uh, is not getting less and um, can be different from person to person. And let's say this is a violation of the dispositions for the uh, approval rules and regulations of approval of genetic uh, pharmaceutical substances. And then you say, okay, but it is not a permanent uh, modification of the cell function. But I answer to that, well, the EU lawmaker very clearly states in their dispositions on the products of novel therapies and the genetics uh, therapeutic substances fall into this category, well, they disposed then that even for drugs that are not considered genetic drugs or products for novel uh, therapy approaches, but because of their nature, their properties, the way the onset of action have much in common with genetically engineered substances. And in this case, the genetic uh, substances. And therefore, the special commission of EMA for uh, products of novel therapies must be included in the process of approval. And that uh, again, is based on a very clear logic. The moment you're dealing with um, pharmaceutical substances that uh, enter into or interfere with cell function, for that, because they may modify them, for that uh, to analyze their risk profile, you need special experts. And these special experts are in the special committee for products of novel therapies and they therefore must be involved in the approval procedure but that was not done in the month of july of uh, 22 also on children's health defense europe on behalf of them preparing for this plea of for annulment i made a request to EMA asking them, was this special committee for uh, the approval of novel um, substances involved? And the answer was no, they were not involved. So very clearly, we have a violation which in no way uh, can be discussed away, but this is something that was against the law. But there's something else. Can I ask a question? Was there any justification why they weren't involved? Well, because the approval, and that takes me to the next aspect, they applied uh, the rules uh, for standard vaccines. 
conventional vaccines. That's the huge scandal here. And they refer to the um, guidelines, the WHO guidelines, that only refer to conventional vaccines because for genetic, uh, genetically engineered vaccines, there are guidelines that require an immediate um, reference to the fact that all WHO regulations have no binding character anymore. So we as EU citizens have a right for EU regulations to apply. And if EMA comes along and simply <coughs> refers to any WHO guidelines, then this is uh, simply something that breaks the um, camel's back. In other words, here, medication uh, legislation uh, at EU level is violated by referring to non-binding WHO guidelines that, on top of everything, refer to conventional vaccines that nothing, but nothing at all, to do with these genetically-based substances, while at the same time there are guidelines that refer to genetically engineered vaccines. And these studies that are required of a preclinical um, type and um, clinical type these studies that uh, EMA did not require for uh, these COVID vaccines, so-called vaccines. So this conglomerate of violation of EU medication legislation uh, referring uh, to the approval of uh, genetically engineered substances, we have a number of violations, serious violations of these uh, this legislation, and that is part of the first uh, claim that we make as a basis for this uh, suit, this lawsuit, because it is a uh, severe violation of the uh, precautionary measure, um, precautionary principle enshrined in Article 268 of the uh, rules of procedure of the European Union with a direct reference to our health that the uh, European Union with its organs must do nothing that would systematically risk our uh, life and health. Instead, in all decisions and legislation with an impact on health, the highest standards of safety must be applied. And this was circumvented by a simple application of the rules for conventional vaccines that are completely incomparable with these substances in the, uh, terms of their nature and uh, um, method of operation these principles have been severely violated. And that takes us to the fact that these substances have not been um, 
studied for um, mutano, uh, mutanogenetics, um, cancerogenetic, uh, cancerogenicity, etc. And here another rule of European medication legislation comes to play, independently of whether these are genetically engineered uh, therapies, this aspect should have taken into consideration anyway. What it's all about is the following. European medication legislation enshrines the principle that any novel substance, so any medication that is called a new substance must be um, subjected to a mutagenicity uh, um, study. So it has to be uh, shown that it has no impact on our genome unless it is a, um, a therapy that is used for ill people with their with the approval of these patients under very strict preconditions. Outside of this exception, it is an absolute prohibition to market any substances that have the risk of having a modifying effect on the, G on the DNA. And we know that there is already a study by the University of Malmö, a Swedish study, which is um, some months old by now, nearly a year old by now, which um, analyzed Cominato, uh, Cominati by Pfizer-BioNTech in an in vitro uh, study showing that there is this risk indeed. And let me note here that these two pleas for annulment are based on excellent studies and uh, scientific analyses by a well-known uh, trio of researchers, uh, namely by the two microbiologists, Michael Palmer, um, former professor at the University of Waterloo, then Professor Sukharit Bhakti, and our highly esteemed um, Dr. Wolfgang Wodak. And in these studies, um, or rather expert statements, scientific expert statements, it is shown that the so-called retrotranscriptions, we're dealing with substances here that are mRNA-based, which have um, the possibility of having a DNA being retrotranscribed into um, uh, from RNA retrotranscribed into DNA has been known since the 1970s so that something that is well known cannot be precluded and it has to be examined very precisely from substance to substance for every substance individually and as this is a substance that is has a genetic uh, mode of operation it is just madness that this substance doesn't only have a conditional approval for mass application but also now is um, 
approved unconditionally and has continued to be, in, uh, to be injected. Let me point out that there is a UN declaration concerning the protection of the human genome. And this envisages So the um, uh, states that have ratified this UN uh, declaration are obliged to do everything in their power to uh, minimize risks, or excluding actually, risks pertaining to any modification of the human genome. And here we clearly have a situation where the European Commission, um, represented by uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who not even answered questions uh, to the European Parliament uh, concerning her um, agreements with the manufacturers of the uh, vaccines, we have a situation now that we have to um, fear this risk and this, uh, we cannot preclude uh, this option, this possibility. Now, that was the first reason for our plea for annulment. And the second one, um, let's move on to that. This is also uh, quite scandalous, yes? Well, this list of studies that still need to be submitted, are, are you going to get to that? Yeah, 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 I, I will. On this point now, these substances initially had a conditional approval. What does that mean? When they were approved um, or for approval, certain studies are required that the manufacturers needed to provide within a certain time period with a positive result. So under EU legislation, there is a possibility uh, to uh, issue a conditional approval, which was absolutely abused, as I'll show later. That's the third uh, reason for our um, claim. But let's um, stick to this now. There are different studies that were submitted, and we're looking at the clinical studies above all here, because the clinical studies that should have been made weren't even uh, taken as a condition by EMA and the European Commission because it was all treated as a standard vaccine, a conventional vaccine, and so the necessary preclinical studies weren't even required. And those that were actually performed, if they um, gave a negative result, they were simply swept under the carpet or manipulated as we learned, uh, have learned by now, um, from um, documents that have been disclosed by now, uh, particularly overseas. Now, concerning the clinical studies that uh, should have been made for both substances, for Cominarty and Spikevax, now, that's what we're talking about now, these two specifically, clinical studies to clarify the efficacy and safety of these substances should have been made. Clinical studies means there's always a placebo group, a control group that receives a placebo so that um, a comparison can be made to determine whether the substances are effective and what adverse effects uh, there are um, compared to the placebo group. Now, 
very uh, few months after the substance had um, been approved for uh, conditionally for market introduction, these placebo groups were dissolved with the justification um, made by WHO, as, which is the next criminal organization, as we know, as given in an uh, official document that we can uh, look up, that it is ethically unacceptable that the members of this placebo group are not given the possibility of getting the COVID-19 spike. And so, de facto, the placebo group was dissolved and therefore it will never be possible. This is why these studies do not exist, really. The manufacturers at no point did they prove that the people treated with these substances compared to those not treated with these substances are less likely to get infected, to fall um, ill, uh, to have um, very uh, minor uh, adverse effects compared to the non-jabbed people who didn't have any uh, major um, impact or complications. So we have a situation here where EMA and then the European Commission should have stepped on the brake immediately According to EU uh, directive um, uh, from 2001, which um, corresponds to our European uh, medication code uh, to remove the conditional approval immediately. That should have happened immediately because one of the conditions for the maintenance of a conditional approval is that the manufacturer is capable of delivering the data that prove the efficacy and safety of this substance. And for that, of course, the results of this clinical study would have been necessary. So here, and that certainly was done deliberately, brief months after the beginning of the mass application, the billion-fold application of these substances, these studies were basically annulled, probably because the results painted or would have painted a disastrous picture. This is pretty obvious. What we can see here are facts, or let me call it criminal aspects that should have called the um, European Public Prosecutor's Office um, up immediately. And certainly, we will file uh, appropriate reports to the European um, Public Prosecutor's Office in the next few months. So that is the second uh, basis for our claim. EMA and the European Commission 
instead of uh, renouncing the um, conditional approval as soon as the police group was uh, annulled, as they were obliged to, they actually granted an unconditional approval to the manufacturers without the manufacturers ever proving that these substances are safe and, efficacy, and, and, and efficacious. So you couldn't have a more criminal approach to this. And that takes us to uh, uh, cause of action number three, which directly ties into this insane approach. Of course, the EU has a clear legal um, regulation on how clinical studies of um, medication for use in humans have to be performed. First of all, um, um, people participating in a clinical study have to be uh, informed that they are test persons, they have to agree, they have to be well informed, and they have to be subject to ongoing medical monitoring. Now, what am I getting at here now? After these substances first had a, a conditional approval, now an unconditional one, without the or formal requirements required by European uh, medication legislation, uh, the pre-clinical uh, and clinical studies required. Um, after they were then applied or made available to the entire European population, including babies, let me remind you of that, we are clearly dealing with an illegal mass experiment uh, on humans. So the entire European population here, not only down to babies of six years and older, because it affects unborn children as well. Let me remind you of the fact that pregnant women and uh, breastfeeding women were injected with these substances even prior to this unconditional approval that was now issued. And the approval for pregnant women by EMA is actually contrary to the declarations made by the manufacturers, indicating that they have no information at all about this. That is another criminal procedure which in its dimensions uh, makes it nearly impossible to describe appro appropriately. So we're dealing here with a violation of all international and EU regulations banning experiments on people illegal um, experiments, of course. We're dealing with the violation of the Nuremberg Code here. Why? Because the European population was in no way informed about the efficacy 
about the properties, about the lack of efficacy, about the enormous risks that come with these substances. Um, the population was not informed about the fact that uh, the bulk of the preclinical studies and even of the clinical studies were never performed, and the population was told that the substances were safe and effic efficacious. The EU population was conned into believing that uh, the entire process had been uh, sped up um, and um, that the whole thing could be condensed into a shorter time frame due to the enormous monies invested into this. And this is, of course, um, a um, case of malice by um, disinforming the European uh, population so badly. And as the European population has been used as guinea pigs since the 27th of December 2021, the first day, the um, sorry, 2020, when uh, Cominati was first launched as the first uh, such substance, we're dealing, of course, uh, with these um, actions against the European Commission, which is, of course, the worst uh, example of um, politicos that we can see these days, and EMA, of course. So the European population has been treated as guinea pigs for big data, big pharma, we don't know, big pharma definitely. Um, the entire population has been abused in um, the most incredible way by radically violating all obligations and principles of European medication legislation. And this is why we have a violation of the entire gamut of international uh, treaties designed to protect humanity against such illegal human experiments. And now let me get to the fourth cause for action. Well, because of not using properly the PCR tests. We already discussed the PCR tests right here in this uh, Corona Committee many times. Uh, Professor Dr. Ulrike Kemmerer pointed out how much they had failed. And without this maluse of the PCR test, it would not have been possible to get to this enormous amount uh, of uh, people who are supposedly infected by SARS-CoV-2. And therefore, it is important that the conditional approval, which we have in the EU Disposition 507, is only then possible if there is a national or European uh, emergency situation. And for that, you needed a great number of cases. Let me just remind you that one of the main actors, Drosten, in the third week of 2020, 
had published a protocol full of errors and factual errors. And he wrote that overnight. He admitted that himself. He did that on his computer overnight. And then the PCR protocol was then used by the WHO and recommended. And therefore, this uh, Drosten Corman PCR protocol was used in most labs with a number of evaluation cycles which are way beyond what is acceptable between 40 and 70. The gold standard is uh, at the very most 28. And this protocol, like the group of international scientists that Professor Ulrike Kemmerer belongs to as well, then pointed out in um, an application for removal of this protocol and other uh, important errors in that protocol um, were found. So it was marred by errors. So the bad use of this protocol and only in December of 2020, when we had this improper um, use, always based on DNA, uh, and at the same time, when the approval in Europe was just about to take place, then at the end of December, it was, what a big surprise, the WHO came out with an announcement saying, yes, well, with these PCR tests, you have to take into account what kind of symptoms you have. So you have to have a clinical clarification which is required. But then for many, many months, the amount of those people supposedly of ill with COVID went up. And then at the end of January of 2020, only after one week of use of this horrible uh, protocol, common, trust common, had enough positive case numbers so that they could therefore uh, call it the COVID-19 pandemic. So it can be proven, black and white, that prior to the use of this common Drosten protocol, internationally, we didn't have enough uh, case numbers. Uh, so apparently in China, there was such a horrible uh, pandemic, but apparently the numbers of cases uh, simply did not suffice. So. In the third week of January of 2020, WHO then used that as a blueprint and recommended it. And then at the end of January of 2020, it was then 
approved by this club and the people who are behind this, and they could uh, then officially call it a pandemic, which was forced was the precondition, at least for Europe, that according to the EU regulations, uh, conditional approval could be taken into consideration because without that it wouldn't have been possible so you needed the officially official declaration of a pandemic in order to be able to get a conditional approval on the way so in our cause of action number four uh, we stipulated that so we use the improper use of the pcr test with all of the new data provided by Professor Dr. Kemmerer. And another precondition for a conditional approval is that this would be a terrible disease, which leads to a high rate of mortality. But we now know also because of the newest studies, the meta study that was carried out by John Negatis uh, just now, that for all those people up to uh, the people at the age of 70, this COVID 19 disease was very much like a flu. Uh, medium heavy flu and for the younger generation it was even less uh, dangerous than catching a flu so it was never ever a disease which according to the dispositions of the EU law for a conditional uh, approval would have sufficed for the use of for the population at large, and definitely not, and certainly not for uh, a medicine that is genetically engineered. So in other words, prior to clinical studies uh, can be used to prove the efficacy and safety of a product. Prior to that, uh, such uh, genetically engineered medicines uh, which somehow manipulate the functionality of our cells can be approved and definitely not conditionally. So the very fact that the EMA uh, overgo the um, stipulations for a conditional approval is another criminal, crazy criminal act which proves that with the clear intention of with the clear intention of getting these substances onto the market at no matter what the cost is even if people died because of that in the real situation you know we don't have an active uh, balance so these are new substances now and this is completely crazy now, so we do not have the statistical proof of all the 
cases of mortality, no uh, list of fatalities. We have the smaller uh, side effects. Uh, so there's a serious case of underreporting here. Uh, we have people with irritations at the point of the uh, injection, but the heavy irreversible side effects, especially fatalities, of course, we have underreporting here. And we assume that only 1% of the cases of side effects, irreversible side effects, have been tracked and in the database in the European of the European uh, Union all, only one percent is registered here. Why is that? Well, again, uh, in this first uh, pa uh, passive COVID pharma COVID balance with the people that have been treated. Um, they are not um, uh, observed under medical supervision over a longer period of time. So it depends on their the people affected, the, the, their family members and their uh, physicians, if anything is ever reported. And in case of fatalities, it is often such that no autopsies are being carried out. No autopsies are being carried out because the health system basically sees a causal correlation. It does not see a causal correlation. They negate it completely. So it would be the exception that um, affected people are confronted with doctors who on their own uh, and because of their medical ethos would want to corroborate if a side effect, a fatality, uh, or uh, a great number of horrible, irreversible side effects, even down to the lighter ones, if that could, uh, if, if you could have a correlation here with the injection of that substance. The affected people, when they themselves were doubtful, would have major difficulties in getting taken seriously. And then in the autopsies, if at all they were carried out um, because people took them to court, and uh, uh, even then you had to fight for the fact that the judges would then nominate experts that have no conflict of interest uh, in the use of such substances. I have the case of a 24-year-old, absolutely healthy young man who 10 days after the first Cominati Pfizer shot uh, had a cerebral bleeding and passed away. Uh, his mother found him lifeless at home and the emergency services only came to the conclusion that it was a fatality uh, at home, domestic fatality, that's what they call it, and without triggering any kind of autopsy. And the mother pointed out that her son, 10 days prior to that, had received this uh, injection, but they didn't react to that at all. 
and the body was immediately uh, released for funeral services and the mother had to find a lawyer she found one in my person and i had to report them to the police so that at least uh, autopsy could be done and here in italy in most parts of italy is like that this was the case in trentino that the health service apparently is not interested at all that fatalities especially of young people uh, can be uh, related to the use of uh, these vaccines so even down to children uh, or primary uh, health officials uh, head doctors head physicians uh, who are responsible um, for uh, the system and they uh, basically sold themselves to this cause and in you know commercials they even provided uh, you know proper advertising for the so-called COVID-19 vaccines and they personally in this vaccination campaign um, were involved and I'm talking about head physicians of major hospitals here uh, and definitely they were not interested at all that fatalities especially by young people could somehow be related to the vaccination even children here in Italy it is now something that happens every other day that children die because of that and the treatment of uh, kids with these substances was uh, promoted and even head head physicians and responsible parties of the health services um, were speaking out in favor of these experiments on humans and all of them are of course not interested at all in the truth they don't want the truth to come out so they are suffering from a major uh, clash of interest because they're co-responsible for what has occurred and the majority of the population of course trusts a head physician a head doctor of a hospital I mean these are the gods in white and um, and many people um, simply trust them so leading physicians leading health officials uh, they have, of course, a lot of weight, so they are uh, burdened with a lot of guilt within this framework. And now, showing the proof of very few mortality rates because of the meta-study by Joannidis, we have the proof that, and this is the ultimate proof, that you never, ever had the precondition for um approving those kinds of substances uh, not even a conditional approval okay that was a rough outline of the basic aspects of this plea for annulment which uh, is now being translated i <coughs> handed it in 
uh, in German um, for an Italian citizen um, um, and, and I worked with, with this on uh, a German expert. And normally, we are allowed to submit this in German, but I will now publish it, and then I will also have it translated into Italian. And everybody then can look at these pages, and I think the lawyers who are involved in claims for compensation uh, would be interested in this, and those who are in the middle of court cases where um, uh, we're talking about the mandatory COVID-19 vaccination, which of course was uh, unlawful. And this is being translated into Italian, to French, uh, so that across the board in the EU it can be used. And now the point is that our legitimation for the claim can be defended. And we're now moving on to the second level, to the second instance, and we will defend it with our hearts, because it is a proof that integrated uh, EU uh, legal protection system were simply dysfunctional. So there is a huge crisis when it comes to the health system where we see that, uh, and we've seen that for decades now, that the uh, health insurance system doesn't work. So the biggest lawyer at the European Court of, Ju of Justice, uh, Francis Joffrey, about 25 years ago pointed out that it cannot be that EU citizens are confronted with the sequential uh, consequences of uh, EU organs and then simply hope that the uh, EU courts uh, will deal, deal with uh, these dispositions and the uh, conditional approval because and would say that it was unlawful. This may take years, this may take ages and uh, national uh, law courts may even decide not to do anything. And in the meantime, nothing is ever going to happen. So in many, many fields, I had this experience before, for example, in the violation of uh, basic human rights when it comes to uh, the fiscal law. So even there, looking at it from this point of view, this case is of particular interest, interest because it cannot be more uh, striking in the way the dysfunctionality is being shown here. Well, it's a monstrous situation. We can see how um, the softeners in rubber ducks are uh, an issue or are, are banned in the EU or some traditional foodstuffs that people have been eating for hundreds of years. For instance, uh, um, certain types of cheeses um, um, with mold. And we have this um, invasive technology and a lack of any control. And if you uh, see this in um, the overall context, and it's really monstrous, and it's um, 
even worse to see that there is a, a body now that is um, enticed by particular interests, individual interests, to uh, show a, a certain behavior and that there's no bigger swarm that can actually stop it. That is really um, completely unacceptable, as you showed here. And I'd say in the context of your lawsuits, um, it's important that this be public. And with our archive now that I mentioned earlier, we can uh, link this directly so that it may uh, be lost in a telegram thread at some uh, time. So it's um, directly accessible. And this is why I think this activity of ours is important. Um, in order to go in this direction. I had two more questions here. First of all, I'm personally interested in the people who took the decision on this ethics commission uh, that uh, this placebo constellation is to be dissolved. Do we know more about them? Do uh, Has anyone looked into um, um, the um, interconnections there, because that is something that I think, if it hasn't been done, it uh, needs to be done in an overview, uh, what are the various interests. Do you know anything about this? Well, I didn't look at the individual names there. This was um, a WHO decision, basically, or uh, that's uh, where it came from. We can see that again and again, uh, the center of this um, central um, decision is by WHO. They decided that it is not acceptable for um, the participants in the, uh, the members of the placebo group uh, be um, banned from getting this um, jab. And this was uh, speedily um, taken up by EMA. And the um, uh, producers um, simply established uh, fait accomplis. They pointed out, um, they pointed to the WHO declaration and they said, and this is the um, cynical, uh, you couldn't be more cynical, really. So they declare that to be an ethical approach. The entire European population, all the way down to the unborn, are exposed to these substances because these substances encompass risks that have an impact on the next generation or on unborn children. So the entire EU population, current and future, is exposed to an uncalculable risk by bypassing the um, bulk of the preclinical studies and some of the clinical studies as well. And then they declare um, our um, ethical principles require us offering the uh, members of the placebo group this uh, beautiful COVID-19 injection. Renate, well, hello, um, everybody. Renate, this uh, WHO arrogance, we can see it everywhere. 
they define a pandemic the way they need it, or they try to redefine herd immunity such that you only have herd immunity if you get a vaccine. They um, define, for instance, um, uh, as we're talking of a reduction of the cholesterol uh, level from 240 to uh, 140, they say it's for health. In fact, what they have, they have 86% more customers that are suddenly considered uh, in need of um, treatment. Um, so this is a sponsored organization abused by the pharmaceutical industry, not only by the pharmaceutical industry, but also by re uh, to regulate entire societies. They want to uh, find the cases, if there's three or four cases of anything, it's an outbreak. For instance, with the monkeypox, or you can see they simply define and they say, we want to protect you and we raise the alarm and we just do this. This is just a criminal organization. Those people who meet there in Geneva have nothing to do with health. They try, they offer themselves as an alibi for governments, for industrial interests, and they get money for it, they prostitute themselves for these uh, interests of, of power, and WHO has been doing that for 20 years. So the fact alone that there's new uh, agreements, um, they want to strike out the term human dignity, it says it all. And effectively, what's happening, and they've implemented it already, um, the entire world population, but we're more interested in um, the EU level now because we're unfortunately dependent on it, unfortunately because that's the way it is. I'm really uh, someone, I'm um, um, I, I think in a, a European way, but this has nothing to do with the um, this EU Commission now, or EMA. They completely discarded our human dignity. And if you do that sort of thing, you consider the population to be subhuman. And that is why what's happening here is, of course, something that would have to be dealt with by the International uh, Court of Criminal Justice. But against the background of the huge funds that have been made available by the EU Commission and the member states towards those producers on the basis of undisclosed treaties, that needs to keep the public prosecutors in Europe busy, particularly if you point out to them how European medication legislation has been violated, risking the life and safety of all of the European population. And this is why I'm also reporting uh, this as a, um, uh, to the uh, European Public Prosecutor's Office, of course. And we won't stop before we can see activities by this authority soon because it's unacceptable that this should continue. Yeah, people are dying. Yes, people are dying. People are damaged, their health is damaged permanently. They die prematurely or they have an inferior quality of life. This is something that the authorities 
that um, are under observation now at EU level, they have to intervene immediately. We can't allow this to continue. And I would like to thank Wolfgang again, who together with Michael Palmer and Sushirit Bhakti created an excellent uh, scientific basis um, by um, providing an uh, expert statement summarizing uh, the international body of knowledge so that everybody can look at the current status of scientific knowledge what's this uh, about what this injection means we have a number of questions from the public at large. Um, the question is, uh, is there any change now with Meloni as president of Italy? Well, I never had great expectations of this lady, and she's where she is because she has uh, given certain uh, guarantees, first of all. We didn't have an extension of the 19, uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccination mandate. It was phased out. But the Maloney administration is not making any effort to install a real um, investigative committee looking at the illegal um, um, things that happened in the context of the uh, COVID-19 measures. Let me remind you, remind you of the fact that we were the only member state where nearly the entire population was subjected to this vaccination mandate um, with the threat of excluding people socially and from their professional lives. And um, Maloney had promised this during her electoral campaign. Now you can't see any of this anymore. And another aspect that shows that it somehow connected the attitude vis-a-vis uh, -vis the war in Ukraine. The picture where Giorgia Meloni Uh, hugs this uh, puppet, um, Zelensky, with a smile. That speaks um, for itself. We have a majority of people in Italy who are opposed to weapons, arms deliveries to Ukraine and who are very critical of um, Italy's um, and the EU's uh, position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, this um, war. Um, this proxy war, because that's what it is. And the, the more time passes, the less convincing this Maloney administration is. So we're not happy with it. Of course, it could have been worse if the so-called Partito Democratico, i.e. the undemocratic Democratic Party, that's the only thing you can call them, if they had um, stayed in power together with the left, then things would have been even worse. But that doesn't mean that now we have a huge change because the crimes that have been 
committed over the last three years in great uh, quantities are being covered up, particularly by the Italian Supreme Court, which in scandalous rulings upheld the um, vaccination mandate, um, arguing that it was in line with the Italian constitution which um, uh, and the their uh, arguments are completely contradictory and really contradict our constitution and uh, one thing that really says it all one um, justice supreme court justice who Uh, was involved in the decision uh, on these uh, jabs was the former legal advisor of the Draghi administration. So um, the man in the street understands that a member of um, a, um, a Supreme Court justice who has been, uh, who was formerly a member of the uh, government that introduced the mandate, then um, sits. Um, on the tribunal that, or the, the Supreme Court that decides on the mandate, well, that's uh, how far we've come down. Uh, Italy is basically uh, the birthplace of a justice system. Uh, let me remind you of Roman law, but I uh, now refer to the um, non-constitutional or unconstitutional constitutional court that we have. We never could have imagined this in our worst nightmares. We have uh, some cases pending in the European Court of uh, Human Rights, uh, not least because of the uh, violation of the rules on uh, fair um, process because we have uh, this justice implanted by the uh, Draghi government in the um, Supreme Court. They are so blatant about it, they don't even hide it anymore. So effectively, they're uh, the personified representatives of these criminal measures that then are um, lifted to these positions and then have the right to decide on the um, acceptability or otherwise of these measures. So that's the situation in Italy. Really? I mean, this is almost like a perversion of justice here. Absolutely. And, and it's incredible that we have to, to see something like that. Two further questions that came in online. And have there ever been a court case where it was about the ingredients of the vaccination. Ema apparently did not give you any any further information because apparently it were these were um, military secrets and therefore there was one to secrets. Are there any new developments in this field? Well, yes. Um, this was triggered by Silvia Behrendt, Dr. Silvia Behrendt. Uh, who's known to this committee as well. So we're by now a kind of a uh, 
legal experts group uh, active at EU level supporting physicians in the um, I'm still waiting for the verb I'm sorry um, the regular safety reports issued by EMA um, balancing risk uh, profiles of the um, uh, so-called vaccines, let me uh, call them um, injections, and these um, are not published by EMA, and uh, physicians have a specifically qualified right due to their professional activity to take a look at these uh, reports because the situation is in the situation that either they inject these substances or before they decide to use such substances as a physician or decides to administer them to individuals, it should really be an individual decision always. So a physician in the case of such a substance must of course um, find out about uh, what about uh, safety, are there any special side effects, and you could see that in those uh, PSUA, um, these periodic safety reports, and also, and this is currently the bigger um, share of physicians now, the physicians have a qualified interest in in order to determine the causal uh, relationship of certain adverse effects and to understand them, with a, uh, in order to be able to um, consider them appropriately, they have a specific uh, interest in um, reviewing these records in order to see whether certain cases that they can observe in their clinical practice, whether they are uh, in any way related to these injections. And this is why we started an EU-wide activity for physicians who rightly demand this transparency. Every physician really should have an interest in that. Um, making a um, template available to require this uh, PSR, and if it's not avide, um, uh, provided by the EU, then we as lawyers will um, sue um, on their behalf in order to get um, access to these reports. So much on this absolutely necessary documentation, also with a view to the full clarification uh, of full investigation of this crime against humanity. That's the only way we can call it. So here, this has been going on for a number of weeks. I know that from Germany, from the entire German-speaking area, but also from other countries, Italy among them, and other EU countries, such requests have been made by physicians. And we then accompany these requests 
when it comes to uh, enforcing um, the uh, disclosure of this, these reports. A very interesting initiative because then, of course, you get more facts from different sources and then, of course, you can proceed. And then you see uh, clearly that what you have uh, already shown is actually correct. And I think that's extremely important. Um, this initiative that you have started. Now, about the costs of uh, this plea for annulment, who, who, who bears these costs? Is it, is it uh, your clients or who? Well, I do it pro bono, and then we'll see what kind of uh, costs are incurred. And, you know, once uh, the proceeding is actually pending, I think that, uh, at least I hope that we will get uh, support uh, that we could uh, get. At the moment, we don't have any cost because of my work, I do, like I said, I do it pro bono. I, uh, I don't charge for this. Thank you so much. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, the same I should like to point out uh, is uh, what the other three experts are doing, who are also doing it all pro bono. In other words, if it were only up to us, there wouldn't be any costs. But of course, uh, if you have a father who has a regular uh, salary, uh, you know, we, we, we can't possibly charge him uh, in a situation where in the past three years they have already gone through dire times and uh, are in a tough economical situation and therefore it's basically an activity that we carry out to make sure that justice be served and truth be shown and it's not only the individual case the individual case is necessary to have um, something that we can take to court, but effectively we are doing this for the entire EU population um, that can be protected in the recognition of their human rights. All right, great that you should be so committed here. So, uh, my compliments, um, and thank you very much. I think it's very important that it be professionally dealt with, and you are a well-versed um, expert in European law, which is necessary in order to push this, and so that's really great. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. We're all living in these times, and I'm firmly convinced that all of us, within the means that we have, each and every one of us, uh, as long as we are free-thinking people and we wish for that to continue like that in the future and times to come, we will all have to put in our share. And that's the only way that we get out of the situation. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for painting such a, a differentiated picture of what you're doing right now. and. Um, um, concerning also um, the uh, argumentation, and there are many different alternative, alternatives of how to uh, get involved as a German physician, for instance. Um, we will uh, publish um, uh, the template, of course, as well. So the question on the PSR, 
that will be a pleasure a pleasure because we really want to rev up the pressure uh, the pressure stemming from the medical society and i'm calling upon the entire medical society of europe to stand up and ask for and claim transparency because transparency is a basic principle a fundamental principle of european right and if you see now how that uh, principle is not being treated correctly then it's something that we as eu citizens uh, is insulting us right down to the marrow and we cannot allow that to happen and the effects are not only to be felt now in this field uh, but also the repercussions will be felt all the way to economic interests no no company owner uh, will be assured that they will stop at that point no no this goes beyond and our well-being our life that's the highest um, that we have and for those of us who are not understanding it in that dimension who still think that uh, you know who, who are still too monetary too materialistic in the way of thought and i say that as an economist now so business owners please take into consideration that whatever the eu commission is doing now can affect each and everyone even if at the moment they're still feeling fine and they feel that they're doing well uh, but this may affect all of us so transparency and rule of law are things that we need at all levels and that was what i wanted to share with all of you uh, of people who may not see the magnitude of everything that is being happening. Absolutely. No can do without it. We have to be able to rely on this, that we have transparency and the rule of law. That's absolutely essential. Unfortunately, we've seen it all undermined, but um, I'm uh, quite confident that uh, more and more people will see that things are going completely wrong here and there are many people who are very doubtful now and are also dealing with adverse effects from the vaccination and are also uh, claiming their rights and approaching um, the the people in responsibility so thank you very much for being so committed to this and we stay in contact and you'll keep us up to date on what's happening and we'll make sure that the largest number possible of uh, physicians in germany will uh, get involved in this uh, request for information yes. yes of course we have to work on this transparency so transparency i'm sorry so we really start a real and true transparency initiative and doctors please show that you're real doctors and that's how i would like to conclude my contribution today thank you very much Renate. Well, this was lawyer and economist um, Dr. Renate Holzeisen, who informed us about two new um, pleas for an almond. And now we move on to our next guest, uh, Dr. Peter Patzak. Hello, um, Mr. Patzak, you're with us, as I can see. Yes, hi. Yes, uh, you're a homeopath, a healer and an independent expert for vaccination procedures and vaccination damage. You're also 
Um, certified according to a DIN norm, uh, ENISO slash IEC 17024. For those who would like to look it up, and you're a specialist um, for uh, Lyme's disease, which is a um, disease which is always uh, portrayed as being quite uh, frightful um, that can cause uh, lasting damage. Maybe you can tell us something about that. And you also wrote a book, uh, Vaccination Patterns of a Discussion, published in 2019. You wrote other books as well. Maybe you um, might add a few uh, words to introduce yourself, to complete the introduction. Well, first of all, thank you very much for this invitation. Uh, yes, I used to be a vet. Uh, I still am a veterinary, uh, even though I'm not in practice anymore. But that has a certain significance because uh, I also work as a, an expert witness. And therefore, people ask me, uh, how can you be uh, an expert witness as a vet for vaccination uh, damage? Uh, uh, yeah, you also a veterinary who can be a president of the Robert Koch Institute, Professor Vela, is a vet. And there is another veterinary who is an advisor to the WHO, Klaus Stör. So there are 1,500 colleagues who work in the pharmaceutical industry and are involved in the development and production of vaccines. And in the first few years, um, you know, I dealt with all of that. I went to university in East Germany, where we still had uh, the swine flu. Uh, we had to fight it with our foot and the foot and mouth disease, uh, um, which we then eradicated in, in East Germany. Uh, so now we have a pandemic situation with COVID-19 where uh, all of a sudden you almost have um, a vaccination mandate and then for the foot and mouth, uh, it was against the law to vaccinate. And 2015, um, I was invited at the local parliament in Saxony to be a witness, an expert witness there. And then uh, a journalist asked me, how can you call yourself an expert and an expert witness? And I said, hey, look, I also went to university and I did uh, distance learning to get a diploma in um, being an expert witness. And then I have been certified in this field which, uh, you know, often requires you to show that you're qualified. And apart from being a therapist, um, and also for those who have suffered from side effects from vaccination, I'm now um, often called upon as a witness, uh, as an expert uh, in questions of complications resulting from vaccination. That's basically the field that I move in. Great. Hey, great. So it would be nice if um, well, you prepared a presentation uh, dealing with this uh, topic. That's right. Can you uh, show it yourself or shall we do it here? No, I think I can do it myself. Yeah, I'll do it from here to share my screen with you.
You probably need to share your screen. Sorry, this is on top of my task line. I'm a little bit out of my width here. Um, but you have a, a, an engineer who can probably help me with this, right? Well, hang on. Maybe I am actually be able, I'm able to do it. Hang on. You should be able to see it now on your screen. I can't see it right now. Okay. Let's see. Maybe you're... Well, the thing is... Maybe you have to go back into the waiting room, and then they can um, indicate to you how this should work, and maybe we can... I can uh, talk to Wolfgang for a moment. Yeah, hi. That was pretty impressive just now to 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 look at uh, the situation at the WHO, and I've been dealing with them for quite some time, and also in the past when I was still a member of Parliament, I was there a few times, and I was there at the World Health Assembly, and it was pretty obvious then and now that the projects that the WHO is pushing. Um, you know, they usually uh, get sponsors who pay for it, and, and then, of course, they uh, uh, enjoy certain privileges. And, of course, then I managed to, I, I saw, uh, encountered WHO in Africa at the very end when it comes to Ebola, when we're talking about uh, prevention and vaccination. Um, you know, WHO is always there in the in the background and providing thoughts. And though the vaccination industry people, they all came together. And even in those countries, especially in those countries where um, you don't have that many critical media to report on this and to gather information on this and where the governments uh, are uh, subject uh, to um, taking bribes. Uh, they try out anything that they want to. I mean, that's, of course, completely irresponsible. It's like treating people like like guinea pigs. And they're, uh, you know, WHO is always nicely involved. And I can only show, show one thing. There's a development that even the the NCDs, the non-communicable diseases, so normal civilization uh, diseases like uh, heart disease, diabetes, and so on, they're also the focus of WHO. And they're using uh, a jargon there that they say this is a risk for the entire world. Of course, that's true. But the moment they use that kind of language, then uh, that usually means that they're trying to uh, sell us a certain thing. Um, so just like with the pandemic, they will say, yeah, this is a very, very dire situation. It's an emergency. Everybody's getting too fat. And they are the ones that decide uh, what uh, the norms are. So, And then the NCDs uh, have to use these norms in order to be able to um, actually charge. So 
I, what I wish for is that uh, we find an international organization, and I hope that many countries that are already critical will join in, that uh, you know we can actually kick out this organization. And then maybe we just have to, to leave the WHO and see how we can manage without them. So now, share screen, yeah, it's working now. And now, from the beginning, can you see it? Okay, yes, we can see it, but we can also see um, uh, the list of slides on the left-hand side. Well, on the big screen, it seems to be okay. Okay. I think that's uh, what the technicians can handle. So, do you want me to to get rid of my own image there on the side, or can I stay there? No, you can leave it because it uh, looks like they can uh, just show the slide, the actual slide. Great. I'm I'm so sorry that this took a, a while. I'm not uh, so well versed in this new technology. I will talk about my experience um, in vaccination complications and vaccination capacity. Uh, like I said, they ask me as an expert business um, by lawyers. I get questions from lawyers. I get uh, questions from other places. And the question that is basically asked, are there any risks? And perhaps I can give you some buzzwords just to understand it overall, especially those who don't deal with this on a, on a regular basis. So how often does this actually occur? Um, well, it's not very often. So the question is, how often are vaccination complications reported? Well, when you look at the systems in the US, it's excess in the EU and the Paul Ehrlich Institute, they call it PI. These are passive um, recording systems. So it's VIRS, VG Access, or PEI. So, uh, you know, the doctor will have to think, okay, this could be a complication, and, and then we'll have to think, okay, I need to um, make a report of this. And the question is, how often does that actually occur? And it's about 1% often even less than that. So less than 1% of all ADRs uh, are reported. So Lazarus, on behalf of the CDC, the American, it's like the German Robert Koch Institute, they have this study and that is mentioned. <coughs> and they, after analysis of the data, over years, this is a pretty comprehensive study, 750,000 um, patients. So every doctor who ever dealt with real um, sick people will see uh, 11 people uh, somehow affected by adverse drug reactions. And the question is, how often would these people then actually make 
um, a report and uh, in Saxony, when I was there at the parliament, uh, it came out that the doctor said, yeah, maybe one case per year. So if a physician in the diagnosis is being trained, then they uh, would report 17 times more of these cases. Uh, so they need special training. And Mrs. Schmidt-Görich, as a member uh, of the commission is not really critical, not known for that. Uh, so that would mean that she would uh, uh, then come to the figure of 77.8% of all German doctors who report adverse drug reactions rarely. But the great majority will not report uh, adverse reactions, very rarely or basically never. Yes. So how many doctors do you have in Germany? If you 15.6 cases. So how many how many physicians do we have in Germany? Do you know that? Uh, who, you know, then we could multiply that number with the 15.7. We have then a lot more cases than what we hear of now. Oh, for sure. Absolutely right. And that's my observation as well. I often see sick people who, when they contacted the doctor, where they say, could it have to, anything to do with my vaccination? Then the doctor doesn't really want to reply. And he might say, um, you know, the parents of, um, kids who have suffered, he will say it, um, uh, he, he doesn't want to have any trouble with the head doctor, because if the head physician says there is no such thing as a drug adverse re reaction, then, you know, that doctor will probably not want to report anything because he wants to do his career at the hospital and he's dependent on the head physician. So this is a study that came out in 2007, uh, where it showed that um, doctors in that case are not often uh, responding to their ethos, but responding to their interest. Does that answer your question? So if you assume that we have about 200,000 doctors in Germany with patient contacts that are in practice, well, then you can just do your math and you have to say that a, a, a person who's sick may also see more than one doctor. So uh, the same case may pop up uh, a number of times because he has been to a number of doctors. Um, I, I only realized at a later stage that there is such a thing as the mandatory report and this leads me to 16.6 cases per year. But I've also seen cases that haven't been reported yet, uh, people who have not even been treated. But I just do the general anamnesis and, uh, you know, I look at the um, vaccination booklet and then I see if there is a correlation. And the mandatory 
um, reporting includes the suspicion of a of an adverse reaction. So now let's talk about what we're dealing here with COVID-19. In that period of time, in October of 21, I saw a case, uh, the first one, and then in total 18 cases, people who actually came to my own practice. And if you look at um, the overall cases, 158, 58 until last week, and then at 21 now, uh, this will give me the figure of 11.4% of all reported complications. But I also have to report historic cases. So when they say, yes, uh, there are um, vaccination difficulties in my family, you know, then I need to talk about, you know, things that happened in 1958 even though you know the patient may long have been uh, passed since but that's part of having a uh, complete picture here so about the individual cases these were 18 cases you see nothing really too exciting here most of them were elderly patients uh, some cases where people were healed others where it took a long time um, so five cases cured, the remaining cases still under treatment, and the place, the situation where we had a fatal outcome, we had severe pre-existing conditions there too. And then the question, of course, is how can um, a benefit-risk ratio for vaccines, which is a prerequisite for the approval of vaccines, be calculated from available data? So how can that be calculated? So in other words, in the case of vaccines uh, that are made for healthy people, there must be a very, very high benefit and very low risk so that um, you know it can possibly be approved according to the pharmaceutical law. But if I know, that the notification rate of notifiable diseases uh, according to section 6 of the act governing um, the protection uh, was then approximately 20% in Germany in 2005 and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of regular you know whooping cough um, or sellers. and why is it that so few cases are being reported? Well, you know, it's a lot of work. You have to fill in the form. It takes time, and nobody's going to pay you for that. And if you are a pediatrician uh, and you keep seeing that, you know, he would need at least an hour or two a day that he needs to work only on that to prepare the reports. And that is time that is not being paid for. I'm not saying that the doctors do not recognize it. I'm saying that they just don't want to report it. If you look at it in mathematical terms, you have um, here a fraction. Uh, there is an unknown number of um, women and unknown number of men. And how do you then uh, calculate a benefit-risk ratio? Uh, and that cannot be calculated from the available data. I've been dealing with that for years now. And another question could be, how often are vaccination complications recognized as vaccination damage? 
Um, and you have to say that not all damages may be caused to that. You can, may have a rash. Uh, you may have uh, uh, pain that goes away that will subside. Uh, according to the definition of the law, uh, that would not fall into it. But it's something that would actually stay and is beyond uh, you know, being locally or topically where the injection has been placed. So, but permanent damage is um, is is then when when the official health authorities recognize it as such. So, from 460 cases, uh, less than three percent um, actually asked to be recognized. Uh, in East Germany, it was three times as much. Uh, this is something I found in literature. And how about uh, COVID-19 vaccination damage? Well, the complications that are being reported are identical with the number of damages, uh, because many of them are uh, transient. This is something I took from Spiegel magazine. So a small part has been recognized as uh, vaccination damage less than 0.1%. And many people ask, and especially doctors ask that, um, in what period after vaccinations can vaccination complications occur? So you have symptoms that then turn out to be complication-based. Well, this is some uh, writing from 2013. It says there that uh, anything that uh, comes up within 40 day, 42 days after um, vaccination would uh, then uh, be treated as uh, vaccination damage. Uh, many doctors are not aware of this span of time. You get an influenza shot in October, November, uh, December, and then all of a sudden in March you may have a rash. But that is much, much later. And people do not see the correlation because, uh, you know, it's five months after the fact. A French scientist in the 90s found uh, uh, vaccination sequence um, caused by macrophagic myofasciitis and there is these cases that uh, occurred very very late after the vaccination itself sometimes six months sometimes more than two or three years after and also a study in finland showed that uh, when children are vaccinated, it may take 38 months until they are seeing the damage. And how is the medical education of physicians designed with regard to the diagnosis of vaccination complications? Well, I asked many doctors, uh, and they don't really respond very much. Um, the ingredients uh, of um, um, the vaccines are often unknown. It's not part of the um, final exam to become a doctor. They don't need to know that. So um, this is the 52 pages of medical licensing regulations do not include that.
in their scope. So how can vaccination complications be diagnosed? So for that, you need a special training. It's a clinical work. You need clinical findings, that's obvious. Uh, you need, of course, the reports from uh, specialist doctors. I need to see the uh, vaccination data book. And I have to have knowledge of the pathophysiological effects of vaccines to know what could possibly happen, what are the mechanis mechanisms of harm. And I just uh, gave you these six examples here. Um, I could give you many more, but that's not the point of my presentation. Well, the, the most known ones are the autoimmune reactions due to foreign antigens. Uh, that has been shown already many, many years ago. And, and also the autoimmune inflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants. Uh, Professor Schoenfeld from Israel has done fantastic work on that and has actually published a, a book on that. Uh, what are adjuvants? Well, adjuvants are enhancers like salts that are being added to the vaccine to make it stronger and more forceful. So if you only, you know, you don't get enough antibodies uh, if you only have antigens and, uh, because therefore you need the adjuvants. And, and unfortunately it has the side effect that it may just turn out to be the opposite and you do get autoimmune reactions. A vet, vet colleague called Pat Cairns saw something in animals that also occurs in people, that the, um, you know, I, I, I may, I may, if a kid has a whooping cough and then the kid gets a chronic uh, bronchitis, meaning that it coughs all the time, then of course it did help you against the whooping cough. You don't have both at the same time, but then you have the so-called Pitcairn effect. Others are toxic reactions. If you have um, mercury, this you you have that in uh, conservation substances. Uh, on the official website of the Paul Ehrlich Institute, uh, you don't have uh, in all of these doses for influenza. You don't have any um, mercury, but in Hexion, for example, you do have. Uh, traces of mercury. So you can't be sure about that. So the risk resistance uh, um, to proteins, for example, and if you have an, an RNA um, vaccine, the certain acids that are included uh, may cause um, reactions. Professor Keshaw, who is already mentioned here as one of the authors, has already been pointing that out for the past seven years. And the makers of the vaccines are well aware of this. So, so this is something that is uh, 
often uh, part of it because of uh, uh, cell ingredients of the cell cultures, and therefore they're very often uh, components of the vaccines. Now, what could be a factor now that predestines someone to have an adverse effect? There has been a lot of research in the countries that still have a lot of tuberculosis, for instance, Iran, Egypt, Turkey, that do have modern medical research facilities and that have performed genetic examinations of those affected and found that an infection with uh, myco um, bacteria, the tuberculosis bacterium um, being one of them, uh, can lead to an um, uh, compro um, a um, deterioration of the immune system, and they can then uh, react negatively um, uh, to BCG, i.e. tuberculosis vaccine, and other viral vaccines. And the interesting thing is, and I'll get back to that later on, in the context of the COVID vaccines, that these genetic um, disposition can be passed on uh, for generations. What does that mean to us? In Germany, after the Second World War, we had a tuberculosis infection rate of 70 to 80 percent. People didn't all get ill, but they were all infected. And they may have passed on the sensitivity to their offspring. So. If I um, need to give an expertise on a um, young adult today uh, on their sensitivity, then I have to keep that in mind. And of course, um, smallpox vaccinations, they're relatively, they've been around for a long time um, and they're better researched for that reason. And uh, they have a genetic basis as well. And there again, there are, um, consequences uh, that are passed on over uh, four generations, even though the last two generations never gotten um, the smallpox vaccination. Now, the consequences of the smallpox vaccinations, uh, what are the consequences for the subsequent generations? Well, what's striking is migraine, um, heat, um, a feeling of heat in the back, um, sensitivity to weather changes. Um, in Switzerland, Gerika Schreiner-Hofwald uh, made a big population uh, publication because she um, uh, was practicing long enough in her region to be able to treat four generations of a family. And she found that the same complications occurred with the great-grandmother, the grandmother, the mother, and the uh, child. And it uh, started with the great-grandmother after um, her um, smallpox vaccination. It's well documented in um, Switzerland. That was in 1905. Uh, due to our history, this is more difficult in Germany. With the uh, genetic uh, consequences of COVID-19 injections, many would have wanted this to be uh, to have been uh, investigated before the vaccines were introduced. Now our colleagues from Philadelphia went to the trouble of 
vaccinating um, some um, families of mice, sometimes the father, sometimes the mother, sometimes both, with control groups and monitored over three generations what happens with the mice. And they found that the reactive immune response, i.e. the acquired immune competence in uh, through contact with antigens, was compromised with the uh, subsequent generations of these mice. The resistance against uh, yeasts, um, for instance, um, certain types of yeast re uh, were reduced. Um, so this um, was passed on over generations. Uh, what was positive is that the mice were more uh, resistant to other influenza. Those were only a very few uh, factors that uh, could be verified here. You need a huge number of mice if you want to check that for 10 or more diseases. But the upshot is that there are genetic consequences. And I think uh, similarly to tuberculosis and the smallpox, um, this will uh, keep us busy for the next three to four generations. I mean, the um, therapists now. But when I say we, because somebody has to treat all those people. Now, the subsequent question is, can uh, such vaccination risks be predicted uh, on a um, personal basis on the, on the, uh, for, uh, for an individual? Because a lot of people um, uh, are sent to me by their um, physicians um, to uh, check whether um, they can have their children vaccinated, for instance, for instance, or they uh, got the vaccination for the children already and uh, the child then falls ill. And then the um, physician, of course, if he's an ethically responsible uh, physician, then he will ask himself, can I do any damage? Because that's the, the, the um, most important uh, principle for physicians, never to do any damage. And so um, they asked me to estimate the risk for the individual child uh, for the individual vaccine. And um, I um, uh, referred to uh, Schufert here, who uh, with his colleagues defined this in uh, an article. And they said, yes, we uh, are capable uh, of defining um, groups of people who are uh, specifically susceptible to Asia. Don't uh, confuse that uh, with the uh, hypersensitivity to glutamate. Um, what I'm talking about here is the Asia syndrome, which is a, an autoimmune disease. So uh, neurodermitis, multiple sclerosis, asthma, etc. People who have autoimmune uh, diseases or had them, or allergic reactions, or in whose families such diseases are relatively frequent and um, have been noted. And that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, you certainly have heard a few things on the role of the Paul Ehrlich Institute in the course of the work of the committee. I would like to um, shed a light on it from the um, perspective of an expert for vaccine vaccination risks or uh, adverse effects of vaccines. Uh, there's this interesting 
uh, statement of members, uh, staff members of Polytechnic Institute, what they see as its role. They want to ensure that the development of new vaccine is not jeopardized by regulatory requirements that are inappropriate or difficult to understand. They want to create an appropriate interpretation and implementation of existing pharmaceutical legislation um, uh, and um, uh, attractive research and development environment. And they want to act as a public partner of, of the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry. They want to have a well-functioning vaccine market. And as uh, the um, monitoring institution that they are, it almost looks like they work for the um, manufacturers and the risks associated with the use. And um, they can be denied. They must be barely perceptible. That's an interesting way of wording it. How do you achieve uh, the risks being barely perceptible? As I said before, a passive reporting system was introduced in 2001, although back then it was known that this would uncover very, very few um, adverse effects. Uh, Dr. Keller Stanislavski um, um, had published in uh, 99, I believe, 1999, that less than 6% of adverse effects were detected this way. Nevertheless, this procedure, this passive reporting system, was enshrined in the law a couple of years later. So you kind of wonder, as an expert, how come? the enforcement of Article 6, i.e. the failure to report adverse effects, is a contravention and punishable by up to 25,000 euro. But it is an article that has, as far as I know, known uh, never been enforced. And there used to be an institute for um, vaccines. Um, led by Professor Ehringut. When he retired nearly 30 years ago, it was discontinued. And as far as I know, there is no um, institution that continues this work. Unfortunately, I think it would be necessary. It's also interesting to see uh, how the reports that actually arrive at Polyakian Institute, and um, there are increasing numbers now, how they're dealt with. Um, somebody um, made an inquiry um, to this effect with um, Polity Institute and uh, asking how come that most reports are always filed away as um, um, connection improbable. Well, the answer was that, well, we don't uh, decide that ourselves. We have lists by the manufacturers that tell us what is a likely or an unlikely connection. And I was surprised up until July 2020, I uh, got uh, a confirmation for every report that I filed with Paul Ehrlich Institute, and then suddenly that stopped. And I was wondering how come, and uh, Mr. Streit um, of um, the Pharmacovigilance Unit 1 of Paul Ehrlich Institute answered that, and that was half a year prior to the onset of the vaccine campaign, 
Um, they expected a high number of reports even before the start of the national COVID-19 vaccination campaign planned at the time, similar to the swine flu pandemic. So they expected a large number of vaccination, um, adverse vaccination effects to um, occur after introduction of the uh, vaccination campaign. And that does not match what we were told by uh, the media. And of course, a layperson also wants to know if they always speak of strict, rigorous scientific review of the positive benefit risk ratio. Uh, then uh, people would like to know what does this look like, this rigorous scientific review. Mr. Hilbert um, approached me uh, with this question, who made a film, a, a documentary for South, uh, for a, a public uh, TV station in Germany. And just before uh, things started with this uh, campaign, and uh, I told him, well, Mr. Herbert, uh, people go through the files um, of documentation uh, supporting the uh, request for approval of a, um, a medication, and if the uh, the file is complete, then um, it's okay. They won't. The Polytechnic Institute won't uh, check whether there is any risk involved with this medication. Mr. Herbert was actually uh, pretty shocked at that, and he called the um, uh, Polytechnic Institute immediately uh, to get confirmation of this, and they did confirm this. So you might ask the question of who. Uh, you might wonder if you have this kind of consumer protection authority. Well, do you still need a pandemic if if you have uh, those authority, that kind of authority? We've uh, touched upon these uh, new vaccine constructs. Uh, that's a term introduced by the federal administrative court. We are dealing with a gain-of-function virus. That's m the most likely. Uh, uh, case. There's four authors at least who determined this independently of each other. We have a, a specially synthesized nucleic acid, N1-methylpseudodoradine. As I said, they always have a potential for um, uh, replication. That's why nature ensures that after uh, transcription in the cell these nucleic acids are uh, nucleic acids are um, decomposed within at most two minutes now this uh, nucleic acid stays as long uh, at least six thousand times as long in the cell. What it does in the meantime, we can't tell. We can only say here that the rec uh, replicable RNA can get into the nucleus and can modify human DNA. Another aspect is this extremely cold storage um, required by the manufacturers at minus 83 degrees or whatever. And last year there was a speaker as a um, at a conference where a um, representative of the um, logistics association um, who said it's impossible to maintain this cooling chain uh, from the manufacturer all the way to the pharmacy 
most wholesalers don't even have the technical capabilities uh, of keeping um, um, the product that cold. And he showed uh, showed a uh, video where staff members in a logistics um, uh, center uh, were shown uh, with thick gloves in their hands, etc., uh, to maintain the cold chain. Well, may I ask a question now? Um, wasn't it said that um, these um, vaccines can be kept in the fridge? Now, hasn't that been modified accordingly? So these dramatically low temperatures suddenly didn't play a role anymore at some stage. Do we have to assume that it's an improved product, so to speak, or did they um, have um, new findings, or uh, was it such as uh, many surmised from the get-go, uh, namely to concentrate the vaccinations uh, to certain locations, to the vaccination centers, uh, to also uh, avoid the vigilance by uh, physicians. So what do you know about this um, cold chain that's required? It's not quite convincing that it's one way, one day, and the next day it's in a different way. What is I, uh, I would assume that um, the manufacturers tested what the um, vaccine can uh, take and what it can't. I think it's more about these lipid nanoparticles. And I think on this vaccination uh, conference, the manufacturer showed that the vaccine uh, doesn't survive if it uh, is heated to more than minus 80 degrees for a certain period of time. But I can't tell you anything about the uh, consequences of this. There's no findings um, in that context. I can't tell you anything here. Um, there are some findings, though, about uh, some uh, vaccine uh, vials um, and how they different, uh, how they differ from our well-known adverse effects. Uh, and I collated some things from all over the world. In the UK, for instance, it has been published that hospital admissions for stroke have increased significantly by 25 percent. The um, Federal Office uh, for Population Development in Germany, I was surprised that they actually looked at how the birthright, uh, birthright decline in Germany can be explained. Uh, this declined by 40% since the introduction of the uh, novel vaccine contracts. And the colleagues say that the only plausible cause um, is not any a political measure or anything but the vaccine construct. They are the sole responsible for this. I don't know if this brochure is available in Germany. In German, it's uh, may, uh, maybe it's only available on the internet. Maybe that may be uh, the cause. Maybe it's due to the fact that a co-author is uh, Swede and um, they published it therefore in English. It was published uh, last year. And I also uh, read a study that analyzed Israeli and Australian data where they uh, determined a death rate of the vaccinated of 0.3 uh, to 1%, depending on age and number of uh, doses administered. That's, of course, a very sad result. But uh, you've um, 
talked about a lot of other aspects already. I have been asked in I was asked in May to give a one-day seminar. If any healers were to watch, were interested in this, uh, how can I approach this uh, from a diagnostic um, point of view? Because that is a job that healers will have to face for the next three to four generations, dealing with these consequences. They won't go away just so. Uh, to say, okay, I have such and such a, um, a chronic disease uh, and I'll uh, write it out or I'll take a few vaccines. I can't uh, um, um, support this. If you have a genuine vaccination um, damage, then you need a competent therapist who have experience with the treatment of these diseases. So maybe that's enough in terms of an overview of my work. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you very much. That's um, horrible. It's really frightening. We heard from Dr. Holzeisen how um, they just accepted everything so easily and that even for the damages where you could easily see it, um, do we have a product that apparently has an issue, a problem? It looks like they don't even worry about it. And this is something I find completely frightening that since 2001, the reporting system has been made passive. So in other words, they used a format of which they know that it's not very efficient and uh, therefore they wanted to open up a market or, or retain the market share of the vaccination industry and those that are involved and in how closely they are involved um, with the makers of these vaccines. Um, the classic uh, vaccines and also the, the, the new ones that we are dealing with here. I find that terrifying. Well, I think that the development that led to um, the administration, so many um, vaccination doses, really uh, incredible. Uh, if we look at the vaccination recommendations for children, it's even worse in the US. There's, it's just an endless number of vaccinations that are then oftentimes repeated. Um, that's uh, after, that's the end of development where uh, initially vaccines were made by uh, uh, the states. Uh, nobody earned money with that. It was a burden on the uh, states. Uh, it was done because they thought that was, uh, they were doing good that way. And I remember the institute in Hamburg that you mentioned that was closed down. Then they were very critical of this. They always kept looking at these things again and again because it was expensive. They really verified whether the vaccines were any good. There was critical literature as well in this context. And that completely changed when medication that was uh, that doesn't have to be administered to ill people, but uh, you can sell it to any healthy uh, person if you have the appropriate propaganda um, and marketing and uh, lobbyism. This is something that has mushroomed and now <clears throat> these vaccines aren't uh, sold individually to physicians, but they're sold to the politicians uh, von der Leyen and um, they um, 
stir up fear and they sell it to um, individual governments. And uh, 450 million doses uh, to Germany. Uh, luckily, at the time, um, physicians said, oh, no, we don't want to um, administer this. And as you speak of pharmacovigilance, we um, had the same number um, of uh, pandemics, and they had twice the number of side effects in uh, Sweden. That's not due to the fact that uh, Germans are tougher, but, but that the uh, reporting system in Sweden is much better than ours. And we can certainly forget about the Paul Ehrlich Institute um, when it comes to the safety of such products. They are a um, supporting organization for industry who are selling something to healthy people. And um, the, the, the worst example is the um, seasonal uh, respiratory diseases. If you try out a vaccine, uh, you can only tell um, after the fact whether that it was um, effective. You can, only, um, you can only say that after the end of the season. And then you can do it again for the next time uh, and again and again. And then if you can determine what is being uh, published and what isn't. So the companies that make research funds available ensure that it can only be published with their the results, can only be published with their approval. That's insane. And that's uh, you get the results that uh, you could expect from that. So it's only business. Um, health is no um issue here it's only uh, the promise to the shareholders that we we keep launching something and if we can't sell it to the physicians then we'll sell it to the uh, to the politicians well yes uh, i have a number of questions that came in online and from looking at uh, vaccination damage uh, you said 38 months later you may even see that are there any damages of which you know or that you know of from studies that uh, they occur even much later than that, maybe even only 10 years after, uh, so that um, people have uh, tumors or something like that they develop uh, even a long, long time after the fact. Are there any indications that this is something that may come our way apart from, you know, the classic damages that we're all aware of. Well, it becomes ever more difficult um, as time progresses to prove a, a causal relationship. It's often a question of um, convincing a judge in a court. Um, Proof in terms of uh, a detective investigation is usually not possible. Um, it's more uh, making it plausible. You may have heard of um, um, mad cow disease uh, where incubation periods of more than 10 years are discussed. But I wouldn't take it that far. Um, um, as to postulate that for vaccination damage. But on the other hand, if you've read, there are mutations. There are epigenetic modifications. And they can, of course, occur due to other causes. For instance, uh, viral, bacterial, or mucal um, infections 
And uh, the older we get, the more such infections we suffer in our daily life. So I'd be careful to um, suspect any causal relationship that cannot be well demonstrated. As an expert, I am required to be neutral and objective. And I won't turn any uh, disease of a vaccinated person uh, um, into a, a vaccine damage. That's not um, uh, reasonable either. You have to look at whether there is a probability of a causal relationship, if I can prove it, um, if, if, it if it can be demonstrated. I have to, um, when it comes to it, I have to convince a judge. I can't it mustn't be too far-fetched. Um, the judge, of course, is no medical expert. I need um, some connections that are well-founded that you can show in the literature. For some other diseases, it's well, um, it's not as well demonstrated, so um, some research is required. So that's a job for the next hundred years to look at this research. What are vaccination damages? What isn't vaccination damage? Is it worthwhile? Is it not worthwhile? How big is the risk that I take? So what can you gain? What, what can you lose? That's the same with health, generally speaking. And um, this is very different for different people as well. I come to think of something else here because I read once that with the uh, polio vaccination where you just swallow it up to a certain point, there was a cell line that was used. Uh, I don't know if that's fictitious or it was real, uh, but uh, they said that afterwards that in tumors, uh, there were certain markers that were correlated to it. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I think what you're speaking of is the SV40. That was a contaminated cell line that was contaminated with uh, monkey cells. And there seemed to have been such cases there. That was a long time ago, though. So it's no longer being used, this uh, kind of vaccine. All right, thank you very much. One last question from the audience. So, uh, chronic uh, difficulties as a um, cause, uh, as caused by vaccination against uh, whooping cough. Well, uh, there are two levels with these connections. First of all, the deterministic connection. So um, that's if I can see a cause and effect in an, in an individual, and that would have to happen right after the event. And then there's the stochastic combination, i.e. that you take a statistical probability. If you say a chronic bronchitis, for instance, occurs among vaccinated uh, children so and so many times, and um, much uh, rarer with unvaccinated children, unvaccinated children. Then you have a probability to say that the vaccinated children have a tenfold increase of the occurrence. Then you have a 90% probability um, for a uh, chronic bronchitis in a vaccinated child to be due to the vaccination. And that is the basis that judges have to use for decisions in 
criminal cases, the question is always who done it. Um, oftentimes there isn't a witness for any act, any crime. Then the judge has to take a decision on the basis of probabilities and um, evidence. The same goes for um, vaccination damage. Okay, fair enough. Now, I'm, I'm personally interested in that uh, uh, borreliosis, uh, Lyme disease. What can you tell me about that? Um, this is sort of like we're getting sidetracked a little bit, but people say that it's so difficult to treat that uh, um, you are lost the moment that you, you, you get it, especially animals do. Uh, what is your finding on that? Luckily, that isn't the case at all. The book that I wrote at the time um, is called Lyme Background and Healing. If I hadn't seen many cases of healing, um, I couldn't write it that way. If you're interested on my homepage, um, there's a presentation, um, a lecture that I gave uh, last year in Münster on this topic. Uh, feel free to look at this. Um, lecture, I said something about the background. Uh, Lyme is an opportunistic disease, so the bacterium itself doesn't cause the disease. You need to have immunological uh, uh, prior damage. And in my book and the lecture, I speak about the eight to ten different possibilities of immunological damage, prior damage. And uh, in about 12 to 15 cases, I've seen that a vaccination was actually uh, the immunological uh, precondition, um, but it could be uh, heavy metal poisoning, it could be uh, psychological trauma, it can be other diseases, it could be adverse effects of medication, something that significantly compromises your immune system that will make you um, susceptible to this relatively harmless disease. And that explains why antibiotics then oftentimes aren't very helpful because um, the uh, um, bacterium isn't the main cause. They are more the consequence. You have to treat the underlying condition. That's fascinating, fascinating. I think we should link, uh, make a link to this uh, um, contribution because I know of many of uh, dog owners, they are completely getting into panic mode when they hear about uh, borreliosis and you know the uh, toxic ticks that uh, um, may endanger a dog and then they churn out a lot of money in order to protect their their pets and i've done that with my dogs the same that we didn't do a thing or very little actually we, we didn't do anything um and the dogs went through everything fine all right perfect good enough great thank you very much and i think there were quite a few interesting aspects that you put together is something that makes us think critically and it's fantastic that you brought us uh, up to speed on this. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. All the best. Thank, thank you for that. Uh, that was a very interesting presentation. And now we have our next guest, who is Olaf Bala. And uh, he is a former radio journalist and author, and he also is a speaker at uh, funeral occasions. Yes, I'm here. I cannot see you now. Well, thank you very much. 
Well, it's very interesting. These are two very different areas that you could speak about. First of all, journalism. We had this, um, um, we heard this from different guests. It's really um, amazing to see what internal structures are operative there. And you can give us some insight into that. And I'm also uh, looking forward uh, to hearing what you will tell us as a funeral orator, what you say with a view to the deceased in the crisis and after the crisis, what your experience is there. I don't know if you want to introduce yourself a bit uh, in, in a bit more detail. Otherwise, I'm looking forward to what you have to tell us. Yeah, as to my person, there isn't very much to be said. Uh... I just got back from the cemetery, that's why I'm still dressed like this. Um, since the beginning of the 90s, I try to get into the world of journalism. And I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, and I read with R.B. Kish how life can be there. And at the beginning of the 90s, I then tried it. and. I work for the Frankfurt newspaper, FIZ, and a few contributions for Die Zeit. And then got into uh, the radio station in Koppermann, worked there for some years uh, in current news reporting. And as to the structures, I don't know what you've already heard about here at the um, Corona Commission. Uh, back then, uh, radio is formed in a special way. Well, you have the people who work on the technical side, and then you have the journalists. And amongst the journalists, you have those that are uh, people who come in as interns. Everybody likes interns because they come in. And there is no such thing as, you know, being trained as a journalist. It's not a profession that you can study for and you don't get a title as a journalist. You don't get a master's degree in journalism. You only get training when you actually work in an editorial office. And then you have the interns who look at how things work. And then there are those that are journalists that come in um, on an honorary basis. So, uh, you know, they only get paid when they have a particular job. But uh, they're freelancers. And they're often given tasks that um, those that uh, are uh, working there. Uh, on a regular basis, I'm not interested in, like, uh, you know, doing polls and so on. And then there are those uh, that are freelancers, but they are fixed freelancers. That means, uh, you know, that that's the lowest category of those that have a contract. And after that, you have those uh, who have a contract, who have a contract, a temporary contract. Uh, it's usually over a period of time, and you can only uh, be that over a certain period of time, because if it's longer than that, by law, you could sue the radio station to become, to, to, to get a fixed contract. And then you have those, uh, that is the next step up, which are the journalists and, and 
if you have that step, you have already worked in other editorial officers, and probably after you've done your training, you get a job. And then you have those who already have a job. So you see, this is a hierarchy, right? With the five different levels here, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's unbearable to tell you the truth. Yeah, it sounds like 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 the shark space. And yes, I mean there is a lot of mobbing going on there, and and uh, sometimes you know those who, who work as a trainee get more money than those uh, that have a fixed contract. And of course, that is the perfect ingredient for difficulties. And now we're experiencing audio issues. I remember a moment, this was a personal thing, but uh, I remember it very well. And that was uh, the public radio as it could occur. This was in Cologne. I think I even was a trainee at that time. I'm not so sure anymore. Yeah, I was like, I had a, no, I had a, I had a fixed contract, I think for two years, but I didn't have like a, perf, uh, a, a clear assignment. So in Kiel, there was a, a, a court case that was uh, important for the area of Mecklenburg-Vorpommerania, and they sent me there from the radio station in Cologne, and they have a show at one o'clock, and I was supposed to do a report about that for the one o'clock show. But, you know, the finding, the ruling from the judge came in the 90s, everything had to be quick. And um, I only had one hour, you know, and we had this, uh, tape recorders and with cassette tapes and that had to be changed over to to a normal tape and then you know we had to to to, to cut it a little bit to, to get the original voice and then you have to prepare that and like i said at one o'clock i was supposed to be on with my report and when you are a trainee, you only get money if they actually uh, broadcast. Uh, and of course, you're interested in having it broadcast. So from the, the courthouse, I went to the radio station in Kiel, which is right next to the harbor. Uh, it was a huge street that I had to walk down. It was, uh, I, I, I ran down there and then I found the uh, radio station where I could uh, prepare my report for the one o'clock show in Cologne. And then I had to go into the cutting room. And then there's a guy there, a technician who is in charge of cutting it. And I said, hey, look, I need to have this cut. Uh, you know, a couple of sentences, a couple of, ah, oh, you know, they cut this out. And the cutter said to me, sorry, you're not on my list you don't have any appointment for this. I said, I'm so sorry, you know, they must have made a mistake, but you know, I'm supposed to be broadcasting in a half hour, but you're not doing anything at the moment. Please cut it for me. It only takes a few minutes. And they go, sorry about that. If you're not on the list, you're not on the list. I'm not going to do this. I said, yes, but I'm going to be on air in, in half an hour. And he says, well, that's not my problem. If you're not on my list, I will not work for you. And I thought, I thought, it cannot be. I mean, how can that possibly be? And I said, if it isn't working, then I will do it myself. Just let me do it. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you touch my equipment. That's, that's even worse. 
And he said, are you going to stop me? And then eventually he actually cut it. And, uh, you know, I already heard the first couple of uh, complaints uh, as I was broadcasting that, uh, you know, they did, they, did, they, they, they did air it. They did air my report. It was um, part of the show. And I, of course, you know, I was kind of nervous. I was angry too. And of course, you're under a lot of pressure. You know, it, it's it's like being in in a, in a you know back then you didn't have the set navs. And I thought, how the hell do I get to the motorway to Hamburg now? So I turned I turned right and I stopped my car. And there was there was a restaurant. There's nobody on the road. I just saw this restaurant. The door was open. I just went in there, and I see it like today. And it's like as it was right next to the to the TV station to the radio station. And there was a guy, you know, at the counter. There was a, a, a two elderly gentlemen were sitting at the counter, and one lady was serving drinks. And I asked one of the guys, I said, tell me, can you tell me how to get to the motorway from here? And the lady looks at me and says, and the two guys look at me, and the lady says, nobody ever asked that question. Why not? What's so strange about that question? He said, well, don't you know where you come from? Well, this is a restaurant. This is not a restaurant. He says, this is a whorehouse. I said, what? It's, this is a whorehouse right next to the radio station. Well, that makes sense now. No wonder. And for me, I mean, that radio station felt like an, a whorehouse. I mean, it was not authentic. It was a place where people want to go have fun. They pay money to have some fun and some pleasure. And, you know, this is how these stations are run. Like I said, there is this hierarchy, you have the top guys, and there are thousands of people who want to work in media. Everybody and his brother want to have a job at a radio station. Back then, you know, people wanted to be a journalist and they wanted to be on the air. It was a great honor to be in a radio show. And then you can just imagine who is actually left over at the end and who is left over. Is it the people who are especially fast? How do they work? How do they work in order to be getting a good job at a radio station? Well, as we know, uh, back in the 80s, we knew that already, that those that make it to the top usually do it because they have a stint abroad. Because once you are abroad uh, for radio, you have two reports, one for the mainstream and one for the Secret Service. And there is there are facts on that many many of the correspondents are at the same time spies i mean they work for the secret service and what kind of people are they well nobody tells them what to write they themselves have to find out what they need to write because they don't have an office they're on their own so that's very special and i can only tell you one thing It was the worst decision of my life to want to become a journalist. And now I realize that for me, with my personality, it would have been the worst job ever. And I never, ever want to repeat that. 
um, you know, not everybody's cut out to be a journalist. The way journalism works uh, in the media, not only in the radio stations, the TV stations, but also in, in papers, uh, just look at, you know, go to the news agent, buy yourself a couple of newspapers. You will see that they all write, they all write the same. You know, there are so-called 400 nursing units. I mean, these are basically propaganda machines. And they basically provide to the media what the media want to have. And the corona pandemic, it was like a perfect example of this uh, nudging program. So. It's done in a very subtle manner. Many people cannot even imagine what it's like. So the people, you know, were trained to speak badly of those who did not want to be vaccinated. Um, so the society was split in half, those that were willing and those who did not want to get vaccinated. And the thing was, you see it now very clearly, that the ones who did not want to get vaccinated, they were the ones that were on the right side of, of, of history. And, you know, there was a time when those who were vaccinated made fun of the others. Not only that, but, but looked down on them. And when you you know, when you look at the situation that we had back then, you see, when you see that there's something wrong with your body, uh, you want to talk about it. Why? Because they have a big mouth. And, and in those nudging units, they think about that. So they are very clever in the way they approach that in order to, uh, in order to manipulate the people. So it's like, like I said, this, this, this example I gave you of the brothel and the radio station being next door to each other. Okay, so have you any proof of or, or any ideas of how critical information is being um, held back so that people don't want to hear that? And do you remember editorial meetings where they said, no, we better not broadcast this or that? Well, the so-called investigative journalism, that is only a joke. It's just a big joke. Well, what happens is this. They, you have a schedule. When you get to the radio station in the morning, and you see the guys that are responsible for the radio show in the morning, the news show. What do they do? You see them there sipping coffee and they read the Bildzeitung, which is, you know, a simple newspaper. It's a light medium and there it says, you know, uh, Russia, the bad guys and so on. And as an external, you cannot imagine how that really works, how they get away with it. I mean, with all these lies and all these negative selection, you only have people who actually follow orders. They are rule followers. So 
When I meet people from back then, I said, do you really think all of that is true? That eventually you will retire and then you get your pension payments? We are at a point where that may not be true. You may not get your pension. Who is going to pay for your pension? And that's why all of those, of course, are doing everything to make sure that they still are eligible for a proper pension payment. And the only ones you know, who are really safe and secure, they're the ones with fixed contracts and they get pension payments. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much money they're raking in. Okay, I would like to find out, new you as, a, as an orator at funerals, we have uh, victims of vaccination and we know that uh, there is a lot of repression, there is a lot of dispersion and and uh, often they say, no, it's psychosomatic, it's pure coincidence that somebody died uh, who had also been the Kaufman Institute of coincidence. You know, they basically had a satirical take on all of that, that it was just basically a pure coincidence, that the coincidence is a bit of a, like a patient. And, and, and in that clip, they were uh, specialized on that. and that people simply don't want to see the connections, the correlations. Do you see that too when you have your funerals that uh, people don't want to hear about it? Uh, or do people start to understand why uh, people died? Okay, just to clear this up, you know, for 11 years now I've been working at funerals. I had 200 funerals only last year. So during my week, I meet people who have just lost a family member. And one of the big things in such a speech is how did that person die? People are voyeuristic too, but it's also, it helps you to, to find out about what happened because others want to know. So there's always a latent interest in finding out why why did that person die under what circumstances I, I think it's normal human nature and therefore we often have that thing that we talk about the hospital of the last couple of weeks or the, the, often you know they have been in care homes and that is always something that we discuss when i have my first contact with the loved ones and and we prepare the, the, the funeral session. And as an orator, of course, you yourself become voyeuristic. I mean, you, you also get a bit uh, hypochondrical because you tell me what kind of disease somebody has. And after a while, you know exactly what it's like uh, because uh, uh, you yourself become a little bit uh, anxious about it because when you hear so much about tumors and about uh, cardiac arrest and so on, uh, you, you feel that you yourself may, want, may be getting that. So I, I, I wanted to find out about the virus. I wanted to find out about, you know, what was uh, happening. And I, I needed to have my own take on it and also my own position. So I tried to get as much information as I could. And in my belief, it was simple that uh, Mr. To, to quote Mr. Vodak, 
So, I mean, any kind of vaccination against a respiratory uh, virus doesn't make any sense. So for me, it was clear back then that this was uh, obvious, uh, obviously a sham. And when we had officially 3,500 fatalities in, in China, in all of China, I mean, that, that couldn't be. I mean, it's like a normal flu, you have more people dying of that. 3,500 dead in China. I mean, when you look at the population of Wuhan, I mean, how many people would have died anyhow within a period of three months? And if you if you do the math, uh, it's obvious that for me, this was not anything that I had to be afraid of. It was not a dangerous illness, certainly not. And let me just um, keep talking. Yeah, if I may, if I may jump in, hi, Mr. Wodak. What you did in terms of mathematical calculations is something that basically everybody could have done. And of course, also, you know, this incredible uh, uh, extension of that. I mean, it, it was expanded so quickly by the media, right? And of course, somebody who's worked in the media, I knew, of course, this spreading couldn't have been so fast, not overnight. What I thought was incredible that the so-called uh, expert journalists, Mrs. Berger from the Süddeutsche or the Tagesspiegel or Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, they, you always had people that you were in touch with somehow and because you know they are responsible for the field of uh, health and service and uh, and all of a sudden starting in March of 2020 or March of 2020 all these people changed completely in in, in their attitude. And also the way they dealt, uh, they talked to me. At Tagesspiegel, it was pretty funny at the time. <clears throat> First of all, they, at the beginning, they said, oh, that's interesting what you're saying. But then when I kept asking and wanted to find out more, they said, yeah, well, sorry, but uh, you know, we don't want this kind of thing in uh, here. Our editorial office decided whatever you say is, is not good for our readership. Well, I threw away my TV set, TV set uh, at the end of the 80s and newspapers, forget it. It's a bunch of lies. I mean, you can't even use it to, to, to light up a fire, you know. No, and it's also not good for the environment. All right. Oh, Mrs. Fischer is back. That's good. So. I realized very clearly that it was not dangerous. It was a pandemic that was basically artificial. People had just made it up and wanted to spread the news. But I talked to these people on an everyday basis and they said, I mean, they are people who are watching TV and they are interested. And 
people made a distinction, yes, between public life and then the life at home. And during that time, there was only two times that I had to put on a face shielding at home. People acted normally, as always. I didn't have to wear a mask, for example, only in two cases when I was asked to. And of course, people were afraid, but what we had in the foreground was that during lockdown, you know, the old people were uh, isolated. People couldn't visit their loved ones. They couldn't be with them when they passed away. And when you talk to these people, for many of them, that was horrible. And they can't really deal with it even now. They have a latent bad conscience. They could not say goodbye to their loved ones. And many of them told me, my dad passed away like a dog. He died like a dog. And that was a very direct effect of this pandemic. And then starting in October 2021, more or less, fall of 2021. Unfortunately, we have audio issues now. Cases that used to be very rare. For instance, someone of my age goes to bed in the morning, um, his wife tries to shake him ahead, um, awake, and um, he's dead in bed. People who drop dead at work, which happened on very rare occasions um, in the past. But since this uh, booster, I'd say this is subjective, of course, I didn't um, do the stats. Um, it's only anecdotal, but it is something that I notice. It is noteworthy that it does happen quite frequently and that the people who die, die at younger ages. And um, what has become uh, ever more striking since the end of last year and beginning of this year is that we have a pretty high excess mortality. I didn't check the figures, but in December it was supposed to be 37% from Austria uh, during the Christmas week, 41.8%. Um, Those are figures that I haven't uh, verified, but that uh, might be confirmed um, by what the uh, the um, undertakers are doing. Um, they have a lot of work to do there. Um, cooling houses are full, and um, these uh, undertakers are usually family businesses, and if they have a lot of work, they usually first assume that they did good work because uh, people, um, you know, the word spreads and, and uh, word of mouth um, sends more people to them. And um, if you speak to uh, funeral homes, they, uh, they'll say, oh, we can't uh, complain about work. But it is noteworthy. One funeral home told me that in six weeks, they um, had 100 funerals. And for a small family business, that's a lot. A hundred deceased in six weeks, two a day. And that's a question that I 
And that is a question that I'm asking myself. Since the booster injection, I keep hearing it from people that I discuss with, that they say, enough is enough. I won't get any more. I got the booster, but uh, no more of this. The first booster is a year ago now, more than a year, and we have this excess mortality. And I wonder why isn't anyone looking into the causes? Well, I think we could um, do something about this. Who has the figures on mortality rates? Um, the county has it. The mayor can get these figures. The health authorities have those. Why can't a uh, local politician inquire about these figures? He has the right to do so. He can ask um, his um, official, um, his county um, health officer. So what was the development the last? Uh, what are the mortality figures now, the last uh, years, last four or five years? How is that? And then they can do the counting, the death certificates are still there. They're electronically um, captured today, and you can analyze the figures very quickly. And then everybody can see, is it really that bad or not? And then you can talk about it. I think it's important not to rely on the figures by the federal government, because uh, the federal government probably uh, exerts pressure on everybody, not only on Robert Koch and um, public early, um, Paul Ehrlich, but also the uh, statistics office. So if um, several counties do it and um, talk about this, then we can see whether this is uh, parallel, that's uh, ubiquitous, or if it only occurs in some counties. So I think um, it can be done. If the people who work in the counties uh, are not contented with central figures, um, but inquire about the specific county figures or municipal figures, that I think is important. Well, but obviously this isn't happening. And um, what I have found recently is this turbo. And now there are audio issues again, unfortunately. This was very rare in the past, and I keep hearing about it all the time, particularly with people who had a, a tumor years ago, and then suddenly this tumor comes back uh, with a dramatic uh, development, and oftentimes people die within weeks. Um, oftentimes they'd nearly forgotten about the tumor that they had, and suddenly it comes back again. That is something I also notice. And of course, what I wonder in all this, uh, in this whole context is, well, my view is, and this is a personal subjective impression, you may or may not believe this, I think that the vaccine definitely damages the immune system. I'm personally convinced of that. And the question is, will that be permanent, a permanent damage? Will the immune system of those affected recover? Because many uh, people that I know personally are affected, of course. And that is a question you really ask yourself. 
And what measures can those affected take? Can they use food additives or CDL or whatever? Take aspirin 100 every other uh, day or something like that. Uh, those are questions that need to be answered. And I wonder why there still aren't any clear recommendations after such a long time. Well, obviously, if they spoke about this, uh, making recommendations, then you would admit that there is a causal relationship. Um, and then it would be toxic, of course, for those in positions of responsibility and for those who suffer from cognitive dissonance and um, don't want to know, really want to displace this. So I wonder, you have those cases where you say those uh, are unusual cases, turbo um, cancer, etc. Do uh, family, um, do the bereaved uh, speak about this? Oh, that was just after the booster. Or are there some people, oh, I really suspect that there's a connection there. Yes, I've encountered that several times over after the first booster. I have a personal interest as well when I um, have a good rapport with the bereaved and we speak uh, with each other well enough. I do ask whether the bereaved was vaccinated, how often he was vaccinated, and how can I put it? Due to the frequency, because things keep repeating, that's not a factual database that I can give you now, but uh, you get a feel for it. And I can only say, personally, for me, there is a clear a connection between the vaccine, the booster, and excess mortality. And how do people um, deal with this, um, with people who have a feeling or some knowledge that it might, um, there might be a causal relationship? Do they tend to displace it? Are they sad or are they uh, irate? Or um, do they say, oh, if only he hadn't get, gotten the, vaccination, uh, the vaccine or uh, at least I didn't, wouldn't have to, um, um, I wouldn't have to have the suspicion. Well, I've heard uh, people say, I really regret getting this jab. There is a strong tendency to leave it behind. Even with people who've been vaccinated three or four times, and when they say speak about it, then what they usually say is, no more, three or four times is enough, this is it. Don't you come my way anymore. That's the normal kind of statement. But if you, uh, with um, friends or in, in, if you uh, talk to women, for instance, that their menstruation with young uh, women are completely gone completely wacko, then uh, you see how many people agree that they have similar problems. We always depend on such reports. Those are always individual cases. I'm always skeptical when it comes to that. But if we look back at, um, for instance, uh, what is the situation at Robert Koch Institute? 
Maybe I can show you the current picture that's available there. Because at Robert Koch Institute, we have these weekly reports. I'll show you this one here. That is the most recent report on the influenza working group. And you can see the acute respiratory diseases. Uh, yellow is last year where nothing happened at all. This is uh, 2021, where hardly anyone ever. Um, uh, everybody said, oh, I don't feel anything. Those are the surveys of the population that are shown here. And this is the current year, this dark red line. Last year is this um, orange line here. But overall, you can see that nothing much has changed. This is a, percent, um, a percentage point now of all those surveyed. It's always all around uh, 6% now. Just before Christmas, it goes up here uh, in November or so. It went up to 11% of the population who said, oh, well, I have a, an acute respiratory disease. But um, that's nothing uh, strange, really, compared to older figures. Well, I can only say, and I keep hearing it from people, from people uh, in caring jobs or in the medical profession, he said, um, it's somebody, somebody in the family is constantly uh, ill. There's always a cold. I kept hearing it over and over again. Once you're sensitized, well, sometimes you want, uh, you see what you want to see, of course. That's a psychological process, obviously. So I do question myself, but it's just too frequent that you can hear this, that families where everybody's vaccinated, uh, <laughs> infections, uh, just go from one person to the next. And that's what Sushirit Bhakti said as well, that these respiratory uh, diseases, that there's no real immunity anymore, but that um, we are now very susceptible to them. Sushirit Bhakti indicated that. Yes, um, there are uh, indications, but these are surveys uh, with physicians and, um, you know, you can see how often do people see a doctor for this. And there was a lot of uh, uh, this um, before Christmas. That's uh, people who uh, need a sick surge. So um, who else goes to uh, see a doctor for, uh, because of a flu? And you can see in um, uh, 2018, there was a lot more than in the pandemic years now. And there was another story that's interesting. The people who are submitted to hospital because of such a disease, that's um, uh, interesting. It's always the same hospitals. And you can see 2018, 2019, it was really peaked here, pre-COVID now. And um, then after that, there was a peak again here. Now, last year, in the late fall, the beginning of the winter of this season now, but now it's leveled out. It's like always. And so these stories that you owe, um, um, it's uh, taken much longer than ever. It, um, it won't shift, that sort of thing. That is something that would um, have to make you um, wonder, because this is only a number of cases. It doesn't say anything about the disease itself, the course of the disease. If you have uh, cases here, it's just it just says somebody fell ill. But how long did they stay in hospital? How long uh, did they remain ill? 
And I think that is something that uh, people are dealing with, that they are, uh, that it takes them longer to shift this again, that the immune system takes longer to get rid of the disease, but you need specific studies to corroborate this. If you look at these figures um, retrospectively, they're no good. You have to plan ahead of, the, of time to um, determine what we need to look at if we want to answer certain questions. And there's very few health services that do that systematically. The well, Koch Institute, for instance, don't do that. Um, these uh, prospective kind of things, they simply perform surveys. And it's always the same uh, survey, so we can say, okay, something specific is happening here or not. But concerning the causes, for instance, um, wondering why didn't people go to see a doctor? Weren't they ill or were they afraid because they uh, would get a PCR test and um, get a jab immediately? Is that why they didn't go? There were so many uh, reasons why you do or do not go see a doctor that this is not really very helpful, this kind of statistics. Well, as I said, I can only give you my subjective opinion and the um, change is obvious from my point of view. Other people might say, okay, we see, uh, we're looking at higher mortality rates because the population is aging. Well, you know, you can um, always um, argue one way or the other. And our society is taking that to entirely new levels. You can always find a professor um, supporting any opinion. I can only say what I see in my uh, daily work and my daily discussions, and um, things have changed after the injection. May I ask, you said that the dead I mean, are getting younger, a horrible subject, uh, but uh, we hear that now that even children uh, are dying uh, with certain symptomatics. Uh, have you seen cases of that? No, I haven't had that kind of uh, bereavement case, I have to say. Just to give you a ballpark figure, um, I had just over 200 uh, services, funeral services last year. So you do have a number of um, talks that you have with family, but it's only a small snapshot either. Yeah, but still, what uh, we see in these studies now, and, and we're just getting their evaluation, that you assume that uh, really serious adverse effects or side effects, depending on I know which batch of uh, vaccines they were taken. Is it about 1%? Depends on what age group you're looking at. With the elderly, more is happening. But where the young, where you never had any cases, we see a lot. So we have specific illnesses like this autoimmune disease, which uh, is popping up more uh, frequently now. I used to be the president of the Rumor League, and I uh, look at you know what's happening in the chats with the rumor league and what is happening there in Germany or across the board. And you have the issue that people say, yes, after this uh, jab, I, I had a fever and it didn't go away. So 
people who had rumor, um, all of a sudden, they have more uh, problems. After a while, they went away and they had more ailments, but these uh, go away. So it's always a question of how that person is then treated. And treatment always uh, implies certain effects and certain side effects. And yeah, and if the system is wrong, well, then of course that's not really uh, without any danger. Yeah, that's of course uh, something else that always uh, comes into play when I talk to the bereaved. It's again subjective, but only the minority of uh, people pass away at home in their um, familiar environment. Most people die in uh, nursing homes and in hospitals above all. And what I hear from the hospitals uh, over the last weeks, um, what I hear from family members is really frightening. I'd call it inhumane what goes down in these hospitals. Well, it's not only inhumane for the patients, also for the staff. Yeah, for the staff as well. I don't think that, um, that it's easy on the staff in those hospitals. And if even doctors tell me you can't privatize hospitals, well, who owns them? Does an American citizen own them all, the, the German hospitals, chains? Or, we don't know that at all. That's that's a wide wide field of uh, investment funds, of course. Many investment funds like to buy um, stationary institutions uh, because 30% uh, of the hospitals are basically assets, and they also buy up, uh, you know, polyclinics, and they want to form sort of medical. Uh, provision centers, and that is something that the many, many physicians are worried about. And uh, you don't have uh, that many individual uh, doctor's offices anymore. So basically, you're going into a company when you go to see the doctor, you know, and they are not independent anymore. They're not free anymore. They do what they're told. You know, they have, uh, you know, they get something from the patient, of course. Yeah. Well, I can only say here, as a funeral orator, I have decided to die healthy. It's really unbelievable what I hear. And it will continue for a long, long time. Sweet Jesus, um, uh, you can see how people are, how... Um, um, I don't want to be a physician at a hospital, definitely not. There, uh, you know, I, I have to justify my actions vis-a-vis uh, -vis the director of the hospital and then the health insurance companies uh, make sure that they pay for all the services that we provide. And then supposedly I'm there for the patient, but you know, he comes last, of course, because uh, there are so many things um, that uh, you have to keep in mind that has nothing to do with health, which, uh, of course, is, is quite a burden. Yeah, the treatment um, rules, my impression is they come from the pharmaceutical industry. They're, they have their fingers in everything. No, it's even worse. Um, 
you know it was you know they it was like usually the sales reps they went to the to the nurses and they gave them freebies and then they talk into to the head physicians but now they don't allow them to talk to the head physicians anymore now it's the management talking to management so they don't want to have any any flow of the money on the side they want to keep it all in one track and of course you know they are making sure they are doing profitable things because if not uh, just imagine that a doctor would prescribe something you know that is not profitable for the hospital and therefore you know they it is management of the insurance companies talking to the management of the hospital services that's the way it goes well an oncologist told me that a good chemotherapy flushes in 250,000 euro and targets are agreed with doctors. And I wonder, shouldn't that be a, social, a societal scandal, really, that this is possible? Anyway, um, it's really, you get a lot to hear as a, a funeral orator, I can tell you. And um, the hospitals, my God, I mean, um, you should do all you can to avoid getting there. I'm, I'm not uh, arguing against uh, A&E. There are possibilities today that patients 50 years ago could have only dreamed of, but everything else. And um, then the, the patients, um, uh, the, the, the food that they get, I mean, it's like three or four uh, euro a day, even though the hospital makes thousands on them. It's better to take a 14-day trek through the South American jungle than to go to hospital for a week in Germany. Yeah, that's true. Well, they know that, of course, that a great number of um, people who die in hospital are, you know, because of uh, malpractice, uh, wrong decisions made by doctors and so on. So. It's not only because of their own disease that people die, but they get uh, wrong treatment. And I have a bad, bad feeling when I pass by a hospital. I, I don't trust them. And I would always try anything, anything before I actually go to the hospital. That's my, my personal take on that. I, I don't want to insult any doctor, but um, many of them, of course, are trying to do a good job. And uh, But then you are kind of afraid as a normal person. Indeed. And as I said, the bulk of um, the bereaved, the last hospital stay of the, the person who deceased um, has a lasting impact on them for, for a long time. Largely, the impressions they get are really impressive, uh, very, really really um, frustrating that stayed with very us much. for a while. Thank you very much for that uh, take on your everyday work. It was very, very interesting to listen to you. And um, the work as a funeral speaker, um, that must be very impressive. I can just imagine what you see on a day-to-day -day basis. And <clears throat> I hear of malpractice, uh, wrong treatment, uh, and uh, the trauma situation. 
something that uh, we need to uh, analyze in detail. Um, one thing is if you lose a loved one, but if that person has actually been suffering at the end, and even unnecessarily so, and the father died like a dog, alone, isolated, without being able to hold hands or anything, that's terrible. I mean, what a way to go. And uh, when my father died, it was very sudden. It was quite some time ago. It had nothing to do with COVID. And per se, that's a terrible situation. But he was not in a hospital. He was at home. And if I then you know, get told that I'm not allowed to go there, I'm not allowed to see them, and I'm not allowed to touch them. That's horrible. And uh, I, I, I think it's a shame that the that the uh, churches did not intervene uh, so that you couldn't have a proper uh, religious ritual as it is uh, customary. And I think this was a horrible crime that was committed. Uh, apart from all the other crimes that have been committed in that time. Well, you know, there are examples where family went to hospital, went up on a, uh, up a hill near the window where their uh, family members were, and um, uh, the patient dragged themselves to the window, and then they um, spoke on the phone. You don't record this, you don't write it down, but these are incredible things that happen. Incredible. Okay, well, thank you very much for sharing such difficult things with us here today. I think it was uh, something that was very interesting to see from close up, and uh, we should not forget this. We should not forget these things, because these were such incredible um, uh, infractions of basic fundamental rights, the protection of um, the family that has a special place in our constitutions. And people have to accept that as such. And uh, we cannot simply pretend not to have seen that. We must focus on that. And I admire you for being able to do your job and that you support people in such difficult times, uh, difficult farewells that were certainly not easy. Well, the funeral's orator, most noble um, job is, of course, to represent the bereaved in front of the um, community. And a funeral speech uh, is successful, really, if the community believe that uh, the speaker knew the bereaved personally. And it's always a personal aspects that um, are important here. And it's um, always best if you can find something where you can people to um, smirk a bit inwardly, uh, when people can remember some humorous episode from the bereaved's life. Um, but I can say that um, over the last few years, I kind of wonder, would this have happened without the injection? This is a question that I always wonder, that I always ask myself. And my personal impression, as I said, is that this injection has an impact on the death rate to this day and on people's health. And I believe it's not 1%, Mr. Burak, it's not 1%, it's a lot more.
Okay, we will hear more about this in the future. Thank you very much for sharing this with us. And all I can say is uh, we will stay in touch. And when you hear new things uh, or information gets uh, compressed, you can tell us more. Thank you very much, sir. Well, thank you very much. I was um, happy to have the chance to um, you. give you thank my you so much. Uh, impression here. I have one last question from the audience to you, Wolfgang, um, asking about the deceased. Um, anybody can ask a question, right? Every citizen, every journalist uh, doesn't have to be a family member. Yes, of course. That would be a good thing. Of course, if you're, if you know a local politician or one of your neighbors is um, on the town council, it um, is uh, more effective um, if um, um, if they um, submit this question, then the um, authorities have to answer. Um, individuals, private citizens, if they ask a question, of course, the, the authorities should answer, um, give an answer, but uh, they're not obliged to. But um, it would be um, good that um, the... Um, the health committee of the town or the, the county uh, might make an, uh, might have an interest, and then the mayor might uh, wonder, oh, maybe that's interesting. Um, they might ask, um, how many people are being cremated? Is that more than uh, before or not? Oftentimes they're uh, financed by um, the municipalities or the counties. Sometimes they're uh, private companies, and then you can ask um, them as well. You can get a lot of data on your own population. Well, you have a good overview, really. If you ask if anything has changed there over the last two years since they introduced the vaccine or before, and then compare it, they always compare it with the average of the previous five years, where we have to, whereby we have to say um, the average of the last five years uh, includes the winter of 1718, which had high excess mortality. So the average is already higher. And that can be taken into consideration as well. If you could have a longer time frame under consideration, it would be more meaningful even. Let me add one more thing. You always have to know if old people die. For instance, in, in the spring of 2000 or the fall of 2000, when the lockdown in uh, the nursing homes was enforced so badly, a lot of old people died. They only die once, of course. And that also means that the average across the population is reduced um, because the people who died back then won't die again the year after. So if they died at, at the age of 80, they won't die at age 81 again. So you have to keep that in mind. That depresses the average, of course. All right. So that was Olaf Bale, our funeral orator and former journalist and author of books. And he gave us uh, some insights into his work, especially as a funeral speaker. And it was rather shocking what we heard. All right, I will now switch to English. We've had her as a guest before, and I'm glad to see you again. Um, Catherine, are you, can you hear us, see us? Yes, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yes, perfect. And we see a nice uh, okay. um, revolutionary picture in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Actually, that's Gideon from the story of Gideon in the Bible. Ah, okay. Painted by a Hungarian who was very revolutionary. <laughs> okay, so that's the, okay. Yeah, maybe, um, would you maybe like to introduce yourself to, like, in case people don't know you already, which I guess is only a, a small fraction, but anyway. So, uh, first of all, let me just say it's always a privilege to be with you, so thank you very much. And I have to do a sneak announcement, which everyone will know next week, but it's not until the beginning of the week that it gets announced. Wolfgang is going to be Hero of the Week on the Soleil Report next week, uh, in part for all the things he's done, but finally his new book, False Pandemics, which is available in English. So I just have to plug that. It's terrific. So thank you, Wolfgang. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Finally, in English, you're very good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. I've been, I, I bought a bunch and I've been spreading them around. So it's, it's, uh, it has been actualized a little bit. Yes. Yes. Good. Um, so my name is Catherine Austin Fitz. I'm publisher of the Solari Report. And I also have another company that uh, Solari Investment Screens. And I came from Wall Street in Washington and then got into a big squabble with the Department of Justice in the 90s that made me dig down and learn how the economy really worked. And that's what I've been up to ever since. Um, my our, our, our goal at Solari is to help people engineer a for-profit revolution. We're a great believer that what is currently happening with central control is destroying wealth in all its forms, living equity and financial equity. And what we need to do is we need instead to build a civilization that, that not only builds wealth, but allows control to be dispersed and decentralized. So our interest is in freedom and, and all the things we need to, to do to get there. And I think that's what the committee has been discussing since I've known you, is what in the world is going on and how do we how do we engineer things back headed in the direction of freedom? So that's that's my interests. Anyway, so I'm here today to talk about the Bank of International Settlements. Before I dive in, is there anything you want to say or ask? No, I think I'm I'm very curious to hear what you uh, will tell us about this like creature that's uh, to most people not really well known. So the Bank of International Settlements, let me just, I'm going to do a screen share and bring up my PowerPoint. Well, let me just get this going. Okay, not sure if this is going to work properly, but you let me know. Can you see that? I see it on yes. the small screen. Oh yeah, now we have it on the big screen. Okay. Okay, so the Bank of International Settlements is a bank in, in, in Basel, Switzerland which has as its members 63 of the largest global central banks. So it's not all the central banks, but it's by far and away the predominant ones, G20, et cetera. Um, they have a very good website, so you can learn a tremendous amount about them if you go to the Bank of International Settlements website. 
they um, they were created at the end of World War II, and the ostensible reason was to handle the reparations to from Germany to the Allies. But if you look at the correspondence around them, uh, in fact, the real reason was for many years, the central banks had wanted to create a bank that enjoyed sovereign immunity. In other words, it can operate above the laws of any national government and it can operate in secrecy. So you're talking about a entity that is above the law and yet it has the power through its members to create many of the laws, you know, that the rest of us are subject to. And so the title that I gave to these slides is the use of sovereign immunities and secrecy to engineer a global coup. Now, before I dive in and tell, tell you more about the BIS, I want to use the expression breakaway civilization because the existence of international institutions with sovereign immunity acting above the law financially and operationally it's far from just the BIS. The BIS is at the head of a global octopus of institutions which are operating behind sovereign immunity. And, and so while they don't have to obey the rules, um, we do. And not only that, they get to create lots of rules for us to obey. And this is one of the fundamental issues that must be addressed if we're gonna reverse things and, and come back to a world of freedom. So one group of people can has, is free to be secret they are free to print money. So the debt growth model um, is the secret sauce behind the BIS and the central banks because they can print money out of thin air and do it in a way that load us down with debt and interest payments. Um, the reality is there's no reason we need central banks. You know, we are perfectly capable of having currencies and operating economies without central banks. And so, um, one of the issues faced by the central bankers, if they don't move to total control, how are they gonna keep control? Because at some point, everybody's gonna realize as the debt continues to explode, oh, you know something? It would be cheaper to operate without you. Now, why are we talking about the BIS and why is the BIS of interest? Um, there is a push uh, for the creation of digital, a system of digital IDs and central bank digital currencies um, and those uh, central bank digital currencies along with digital IDs are going to create a system of complete transaction control that, um, that will literally be the end of freedom. So uh, if you don't behave, um, you have, you know, they can literally turn off your money. So I wanna show you one video from, um, an IMF panel in 2020. This is October 2020. This is Augustine Karstens, the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements of the BIS. And what he's going to say is that with CBDCs, um, your deposits are no longer your money, they're their money. They can, can, they can set the rules and they can enforce the rules centrally. This is all in 56 seconds. Here we go. He's uh, silent. Uh, really? Maybe um, I just got the information you should play press, uh, sorry, uh, press play um, to maximize the, uh, the, your presentation. Maybe then that's also going to work because now we see also on the left hand side, we see the slides. Okay, so wait. Uh, presentation, presentation mood. 
the mood. I think though, on, when I share screen, I have to do share sound. Okay. To share your computer audio, please install the Zoom audio device. Please restart your audio sharing application such as the media player after install to continue sharing computer. Wait a minute. But Wolfgang, you know about this like presentation mood uh, mode is, mode version. So I've got I've got the, it's ah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here we go. General use. Uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, she, to what is. Okay, and then the um, the next slide is another video. So maybe if you could, is it Corbin who's bringing them up? Who's I don't know who's bringing them up. I can play it here. Let me do this. Okay, I see. I think that uh, Corbin was just able. He he looked for the video and was able to then, uh, you know, send it to the the team here. Okay. Well, let me play this one here. I don't know how I can stop you from seeing the other slides. Let me just play this. It's not so important. Like yeah. we can also zoom in. It's so possible that uh, even if you have to have CBDC in some form that you're not destroying the banking system. If you do it the way China is doing it, now you have to remember China only recently introduced their banking system and it seems they were not willing to ready to give it up. They have already CBDC, it's still a pilot project, but it's introduced you know, among millions of people already. But it was introduced on purpose in such a way that it would not harm the banking system and therefore is a more um, truthful sort of update of the of the old paper money um, but of course it still has the control aspect so at least it's not killing the banking system uh, the way they do this is by um, requiring you to have a bank account in order to get CBDC so it's not a direct account at the central bank it's only through your bank that you can get it you see how simple that is and of course could be done over here but they're not discussing it in the, in say the ECB is not discussing it because you see their agenda is to get rid of banks. But this alternative exists. But then, of course, the key problem is this control aspect. 
um, which at the moment they haven't stepped up in China, but that can be introduced any time. And that, of course, is a concern. Also, they never talk about the nature of this CBDC. What, what is it actually going to look like? They never talk about that. Um, but I heard one European central banker tell me what it's going to look like. He saw it. He was invited to one of the old central banks in Europe that are very much promoting this. And they showed him. And, you know, he's, he's a top, um, you know, executive director of another central bank in Europe. And there's no reason to believe that he was telling me a story. Um, and he was around this, this large and would be implanted under your skin. So that is the plan. Right. And of course, that has other implications on top of what we've mentioned, on top of the control aspects, because that actually enters your, your body. In my view violates, uh, violates human dignity and can be then used for, uh, even in terms of functionality beyond the monetary and economic transaction purposes. So highly dangerous and definitely something we have to oppose. And so using cash is one of the things we can do to make sure um, that it will be, the hurdle will be higher for the central planners to introduce the CBDC. So that is Richard Warner, who is one of the top academic scholars on banking and central banking in the world. Um, and what he's describing is the integration of the financial transaction system controlled centrally with the same systems that do surveillance and entrainment subliminal programming and mind control so you're talking about a full human body system of control that is quite extraordinary and of course solves the problems that uh that the leadership we're dealing with when they canceled slavery. In other words, if you look at the reasons they canceled slavery, this technology solves some of those problems. Um, okay, so so let me jump back. So if you look at where the BIS is headed, it's certainly a very dire place, and we'll get back to that. Let me go back and, and sort of help you with some of the history. The history of the powers and authorities of the of the BIS started with the Hague Convention. Again, when I when they created in 30 and 36, they created a bank to help them ostensibly sort of deal with the reparations coming out of World War I. It was created as a bank with self-perpetuating powers, a self-perpetuating board of directors. It now has 63 uh, central banks and monetary authorities. You can go to their website and it's all fully disclosed. What is of great concern is a network that is now being put in place called the Innovation Hubs, which are hubs around the world designed to help bring in CBDCs in 190 plus countries. Their powers and activities are to hold and transfer gold, to hold, and this is for their members. So for their members, they hold and transfer gold, bank deposits in multiple currencies, securities, data, um, they promulgate regulatory standards for their um, members and manage collective investment vehicles as well as services for others, which is not quite clear. But I would note on their balance sheet, they make it clear that they can keep an infinite amount of money in investment pools that are off balance sheet and secret. Now, remember, all of these things can be done for their members 
in secrecy and uh, immune from the national laws. So you're talking about a money system that can transfer and hold money globally that is both secret and not subject to, to national laws. So if you look at how this was constructed, it's, it's evolved over many years. Um, some of them described here. And again, much of this you can find on their website. The date I wanna focus you on is 1994 when the New York Fed and the Fed purchased shares. And um, it was later, a little bit later that they then closed out all the private, there used to be private shareholders. Um, when the Fed purchased shares, they the Fed had always been active, but felt it was a conflict of interest to own shares. But there was an integration that occurred in 1994. And one of the reasons that's so important is, wait a minute, that was the year, it was fiscal 1997 that vast amounts of money started to disappear from the federal government. So the US federal government since fiscal 1997 is missing 21 trillion there's 21 trillion in undocumentable adjustments. And that move started to happen not that long after the New York Fed and Fed bought shares in the BIS. And one of my big questions is, was the majority of that money laundered out through the BIS? Um, again, the BIS having sovereign immunity and nobody being able to pierce that veil. Remember, the New York Fed is the depository for the U.S. government, so they they control and operate the bank accounts. And if there are twenty one trillion dollars of undocumented transactions, those transactions were made through the Fed as agent or their member banks. The in 1999, a financial stability forum was created that then became a board in 2009 during the financial crisis. Um, and and that uh, institution there are serious questions as to whether they have found a way to extend their sovereign immunities um, through those institutions, which we'll talk about in just a second. The innovation hubs began in 2019, and these hubs, which are in Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Stockholm, Frankfurt, Paris, Toronto, and then they have a big New York Innovation Center. All of these, from everything we can tell, enjoy sovereign immunity in negotiation with a treaty with a host company, which gives the ability of the BIS and who's ever working on CBDCs with them in that area, sovereign immunity, including on the facilities that they have there. Um, if you look at some of the immunities, they can be quite extraordinary. So um, uh, they, no one is allowed in, their, in the Bank of International Settlements they have their own, essentially their own police and the uh, the Swiss enforcement folks cannot come in without their permission. They have diplomatic immunity from arrest, imprisonment, seizure. The one thing they're not subject to, they are subject to uh, traffic enforcement. That's the one exception. But this means they can carry documents and data, you know, and digital files and digital assets anywhere in the world behind diplomatic immunity, nobody can touch them, no taxation, no oversight, no regulation, their freedom from immigration restrictions, um, they're free to encrypt and exchange encrypted data above sovereign immunity, the freedom from local legal jurisdiction, and on and on and on. And if you look at those powers, particularly to the extent they've been extended, 
um, through the Financial Stability Board, they are potentially awesome. And, and when we combine them with the other international organizations who've been created um, and enjoy sovereign immunity, you are literally looking at, this is the financial train tracks of building a breakaway civilization, which is what has happened. Um, John Titus made a video that I recommend to all of you called All the Plenary's Men about the criminal prosecution of HSB or the protection of HSBC from criminal prosecution in 2012. And it's this case study that has um, indicated to us that we believe the BIS has found a way to try and extend sovereign immunity through the systemically important banks, insurers, and payment systems that um, they run through the Financial Stability Board at the BIS. So the Financial Stability Board has uh, designated systemically important financial institutions, which are mostly banks. You can see them listed over on the right of the slide. They have designated some insurance company as systemically important insurance companies. And then the third group, which is not shown and for which we cannot get any data, is systemically important payment systems, which, of course, are very critical train tracks within the financial system. And so one of our major questions is, are these, are these banks and insurance companies and payment systems in a position to join some or all sovereign immunities? Increasingly, our guess is yes. Of course, we know the innovation hubs, uh, according to their agreements and treaties with the local country, do appear to enjoy that same immunity. And of course, if it's BIS staff working there, they enjoy that immunity anyway. So as I said, the power of the BIS is not just in its ability to run a global system which can print money and do anything with it behind sovereign immunity and without taxation. Um, and probably, uh, if I'm right, extend it through the systemically important institutions in the, uh, in the FSB. It's that they are the financial train tracks that supplement and complement lots of other institutions that enjoy sovereign immunity, including the World Health Organization, the World Bank, and the IMF. If you look at what has been going on around the world, a lot of what's been happening is debt entrapment. And the IMF and the World Bank, in my opinion, have been critical to entrapping countries in debt, lever them up, and, and that's all part of the game of getting central control. There is, um, Corey Lynn has been writing and publishing a series on the extraordinary number of institutions in the Americas and in Latin America created by the United States at the end of World War II that all enjoy sovereign immunity. So. The number of institutions that enjoy this sovereign immunity are far greater than what we see on this slide. But there is no doubt, as you are clearly aware, that, that if you just look at what is being done with the BIS, the United Nations, the, the Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the World Health Organization, it's extraordinary. Now, the thing I want to underscore is when you give an institution the power to avoid all rules, the power to print money out of thin air, which it can through its members, and the power to enjoy secrecy globally, what you're doing is you're creating a model that is destined by the comp, you know, the magic of compound interest, 
to end up owning everything. It's simply a matter of when and how. And so the, the challenge we're facing here is the model is antithetical to life and antithetical to freedom. And it's certainly antithetical to all the laws, constitutional laws and basic laws of any of the countries that are their members. But it, what it does is it gives the ability to do what they're doing now, which is basically using their powers to destroy the sovereignty of every nation in the world. Now, if you're the BIS and the bankers, you can do that all with monetary means. You don't need the World Health Organization, but to, to basically do it in a way that the mob doesn't turn on you and get you with pitchforks, because if you look at the bankers, you know, they're very few number of people. But if everybody figures out this is the bankers and, and go after them with pitchforks, they can't do what they're doing. They can't get away with what they're doing because what they're doing is criminal. And, um, and that's where the World Health Organization comes in and using pandemics and biowarfare and poisoning to accomplish their tasks. And I believe that um, if you look at, at their push through the World Health Organization right now, that's the bridge of control they need to get to the point where they can implement CBDCs. CBDCs and digital IDs are gonna be very complicated and difficult to implement. And it's, it's not something that they can do immediately. So the question is, until they get total control through the financial transactions mechanism, how do you build your train tracks of control? And of course, one is controlling the food supply and another is through the World Health Organization and all the different health bureaucracies like One Health. So if you want more background reading on the, on, on the BIS, I would, I would recommend a series of different books and articles. I would start with the BIS website and a wonderful book called The Tower of Basel by, a, uh, by Adam Labor that was published in 2015. It's got an excellent review of the history and sort of how the bank grew and evolved. I would recommend again, John Titus's um, video at his best evidence channel, All the Plenary's Men. Patrick Wood has been warning about this for years, and um, he has an article from 2005 uh, at his website, Technocracy Now, on the BIS, and, their, and he focuses very much on the danger of sovereign immunity. I have an article at Solari.com called, Does the BIS um, OS $21 trillion? And Carolyn Betts wrote an, an excellent book review of the Tower of Basel, if you, um, uh, if you want to read that. Um, and don't have time to read the book. So uh, very good book review and lots of detail about what's in the book. And then I have an article called, I want to stop CBDCs, what can I do? It's got a copy of the different videos and other very powerful videos that describe the dangers of CBDC quite well. So there's a fair amount of material if you want to uh, get uh, yourself educated. As Corey Lynn at Corey Diggs publishes her, her articles on the organizations with um, sovereign immunity, I would also recommend those. Um, as Richard Warner said, um, it's uh, over on the right, we have every week we publish a cartoon. Right now, we're if you go to Solera, our newest cartoons are on sex and, and CBDCs. <laughs> so we've been on sex for a couple of weeks, but 
Um, the idea being that people who use cash are much more attractive and fashionable. But here we have a woman checking out at the grocery store and she, uh, the, the cashier says to her, how would you like to pay cash or slavery? <laughs> anyway, so uh, so on the left is a, uh, a cartoon we use on Solari. Um, in fact, at the end of March, we are going to, we just ordered a whole bunch of hats that say, make cash great again. And we're gonna do another series that say cash every day. But the hope is the more people who not only get start using cash, but start engaging with their local business people and, um, uh, and sort of local merchants uh, about the importance of using cash, the, uh, you know, the more of the conversation can happen about how we start to build economic resilience at a local level, and protect our sovereignty because as i said this is not we we don't the, the reason you want to stop international organizations from having sovereign immunity and being above the law and you want to stop a, a financial transaction control grid is that these two things make individual or national sovereignty impossible and at the end of the day, what this comes down to is, are we going to be sovereign or not? And one of the secret sauces behind the, you know, the case for our team winning is without, you know, the financial system is simply a creature of law. It's contract law and, and financial transaction law that creates financial assets. And we've bubbled economy with fantastic amounts of financial assets. And if there's not going to be in any law and the pirates are above the law, then, you know, all financial liquidity is going to break down, um, which means that ultimately our team, you know, the freedom team can create a lot more wealth than the than the controllers. All they can do is harvest steel and, and control wealth. So at the end of the day, this is really about sovereignty. And um, I think once you take a serious look at the BIS and the institutions that enjoy sovereign immunity and where they're going, they're creating a world that you and I don't want to live in. So, um, you know, it's just another, another picture, and you know, it's another piece in the jigsaw puzzle of how control is engineered. Um, but I think it's an important one because if you look at the bureaucracies that run the world, you know, the BIS is very much at the top of the bureaucracies that run the world. Um, and if you add the banks and insurance companies that they've designated as the systemically important, you've basically put together a combination of the most powerful financial institutions in the world who can print money out of thin air and operate above the law. And, and that describes a great deal of the train tracks that the corruption has grown on. So with that, let me end this share and turn it over to you for questions. I have a question. You mentioned that the <clears throat> that the Fed bought shares at this Bank of International Settlement. How how does one have to imagine this? Like who do they buy this from? What kind of price uh, might might be might we be looking at? And what's the what does the um, what are you then entitled to do in case you own these shares? So I can't answer the I don't I don't know what the terms and conditions of that purchase was. 
The Fed and the New York Fed were very active in the BIS government before they bought shares. So I'm not sure if it made that much difference. But my guess is, and these are this is total conjecture, that by by everyone coming in as shareholders and then excluding the private shareholders, they could basically engage in this extensive kind of money laundering and money movements and together share the profits. And that made it much easier to engineer cooperation among literally 63 central banks. So if you're going to move $21 trillion out of the US and launder and do various things with it around the world, you're talking about a, a massive amount of money. And if you're not one of the shareholders, then the other central banks are getting the profits and you're not. If they're private shareholders, you have to share the profits with them and some of the disclosure. So for complete secrecy and for everybody to, to be able to share the profits in their pro rata percentage, you need the private guys out and everybody in. So I suspect it was because they were gonna radically increase the size of the BIS financial operations. Now, when you talk to most people who are trained on Wall Street or in Washington, and you say the BIS, they think of the BIS as a regulator. Mm -hmm. If you look at what happened after 94 and then 97, when this money started to move, I think of the BIS as the largest money laundering operation in the world. Okay, I have like, um, uh, you know, like um, additional questions. Like these private shareholders, who do we know who they were? Um, I don't know who they were. I know one who was squeezed out and brought, uh, started to bring a lawsuit. I don't know how far the lawsuit went, but he he sued, you know, negotiating the price. And I have it on my list to talk with him. So I know one of the people who got squeezed out and he may know, but I'm not familiar. But what these were private people or like representatives of companies uh, like what you just is this like a company and how did they these private shareholders get uh, get in there to begin with? At, at one at one point it was a possible you know it was an investment open to I'm assuming it was accredited investors mm -hmm. so I don't really know all I know was that there were still private investors left and they squeezed them out and I think the reason they squeezed them out is what started in 1997. So it started in October 1997, which is the beginning of the Fed fiscal 1998 year. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it, I think they did the manipulation. I think they did the reengineering because they were planning on engineering a global coup, and you needed the private guys out, and you needed to to make sure that you know, if there were a lot more financial movements and activities that could generate a lot more profit, you needed to make sure everybody had a clear picture of who was going to get what in terms of participating in the profits. And that's that would be one of the reasons that the Fed and the New York Fed went in. Now, if you look at their board structure, it looks to me like the Bank of England and the Fed are two of the most powerful board players governing the BIS. And um, so the money that gets into that bank and is maybe then laundered um, somehow, like where does that money come from? So that comes from the central banks, it's their own money or is it like 
like laundering opportunities for other players okay. as well. So, so remember, what the BIS has the power to move money around globally to hold or move for the central banks. And there could be hundreds of legitimate reasons why the central banks would want to do that. Okay. So we're not talking about those. Um, if you let, let's go back to the United States with 21 trillion of undocumentable adjustments. Okay. So that started in October 1st, 1997. So in the first year, in the first couple of years, um, by 2001, you had HUD was missing. And I think I think HUD was missing about 200 billion and DOD was missing about 3 trillion. Okay, so let's just say round figures in that first four years, you have $4 trillion of undocumentable adjustments at the federal government and the federal government is refusing to obey the auditor disclosure laws. Mm -hmm. So that's what we know. So let me just, I'm talking totally the theoretical. When in 1994, when the Fed went on to the, onto the BIS, became a BIS shareholder, was the same year that Robert Rubin brought Epstein to the White House. And if you read Whitney Webb's book, Epstein met, you know, went to the White House many, many times before the Clintons left office. The Clinton Foundation was created at the end of 1996, I think, somewhere in there. And when Clinton left office, the first thing he did was got on a plane with Epstein and went and visited countries all over the world. Okay, now let's just pretend for a second that you can you can take money out of HUD, you can take $59 billion out of HUD, and you can, the New York Fed can move it to the BIS accounts, who can then move it to countries all over the world, and you can make a deal with them to take a percent and then donate the rest back to the Gates Foundation or the Clinton Foundation. Why not? Once that money, now what's not legal is for the New York Fed to move the money out of a treasury account into the BIS to do these things and not, not disclose it on the books. So, so the accountability point here is why did the New York Fed as depository agree to continue to run the federal accounts when the federal government was clearly breaking the financial disclosure and the financial management laws. And if money was moved illegally out of those accounts, then they are liable. And, but in the meantime, they've taken to being allowed to have these uh, secret, these black, um, black budgets um, really officially. Right. So, that so in fiscal, that right. In, the mm -hmm. problem became in fiscal 2018, well, they took a series of steps during the 2000. If you go to Solari, if you go to missingmoney.solari.com, you know, all the documentation is there for everything I'm describing. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, and it's quite extensive, but they did a series of things culminating in fiscal 2018, October 2018, during the Kavanaugh hearings, the, um, the, Congress, both sides, both House and Senate and the White House, agreed to a policy called Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board Statement 56 that basically said a secret group of people by a secret process 
could move accounts outside of the publicly disclosed financial statements without disclosure, mm -hmm. which means now, not only did they take that position for the federal government, but they also took that position for companies that did a lot of business with the federal government. So especially when you add the classification laws. And so what you've got is a situation where the financial disclosure of the U.S. government of 150 agencies of the federal government related entities and commissions as well as a lot of the big defense and other contractors and banks who do business with the federal government is essentially meaningless. There's no way now, and that's before we assumed that the sovereign immunity has been extended to the systemically important banks and insurance companies, because mo many of the big institutions that are the biggest ones doing business with the federal government are those systemically important institutions. So what I'm saying, Vivian, is you're talking about creating a financial powerhouse, which is a breakaway civilization. They're above the law. And so if all that, if, if money gets in there, do we have to assume that these people involved, the directors of Allianz or whatever, that they know that it's um, coming from black budgets could could maybe come from black budgets i mean who 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 knows about maybe the background of like has the information that you are suggesting so that's an excellent question what i find is that information is very much um you know everybody's on a need to know basis and you'd be amazed at how high people can go before they have any picture of the whole thing. And one of the things I did when I left Washington is I made it, one of my goals was to create an integrated picture of, of the whole economy, both overt and covert. And what I found in the process, for, I, I give you a perfect example. When Hank Pullman, who was the chairman of Goldman Sachs, became secretary of the treasury, during the financial crisis, he announced that they weren't gonna bail out AIG. Now, I could have told Hank Paulson, if he'd asked, that that was impossible, that they had to bail out AIG because AIG was running so many black accounts that there was no way, a bankruptcy of AIG would allow all that documentation to be in play and get out in the marketplace for some of it. And there was no way the feds could afford that leakage. So. So the cost of not bailing out was always going to be greater than the cost of mm -hmm. of bailing out because the the secrecy leak leakage would have, you know, it could have imploded the U.S. government and the U.S. financial system. But what shocked me was that Hank Paulson didn't know that. And what I realized was I knew more about the covert operations at the Department of Justice than Hank Paulson as the chairman of Goldman Sachs, which to me was pretty shocking. Well, and if that if that money comes now from maybe these black budgets, do you think it just goes into like um, so? Is it is it like a whatever a lobby con collusion kind of thing where it goes maybe to uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or do you think it also goes into like really? Uh, I mean, 
is that a criminal, I mean, like a really criminal, um, you know, like um, maybe false flags, flag operations or like um, something really like, like people trafficking or so? So, okay, so, so think of the economy as like Disney World and you have the upstairs and you have the downstairs. Mm. And at the end of World War II, we created the conditions of creating this breakaway civilization. And from that point on, we, we created three layers. We created a layer of what I call a hidden system of finance with the money that was seized from the Germans and the Japanese and the other resources seized in the war. So that was one layer. And, and one of the things that layer did was proceeded to try and run and control organized crime globally. So this operation is deeply integrated in with narcotics trafficking, other forms of trafficking. So, so, so this layer is the predominant leader in organized crime. Okay. So you have the hidden system of finance and remember it's the allies. So it's particularly England and the United States. So it's the city in New York running this. Then you have a layer, which is the black budget and the black budget is money that the Congress has appropriated or the Fed has financed or the primary dealers under the Fed have financed that can be spent secretly. So that's called the black budget. Okay. And then you have a whole layer of money that is spent for national security that is not black budget or hidden, but it is secret. So, and now with FASB and these three pots have grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And, and, you know, because essentially if, if they are above the law and are not necessarily subject to taxation or regulation, they're going to grow much faster. Now, part of the power of this is if you run a central bank during the financial crisis, you're loaning to the banks at 1% to 0%. And the average American is borrowing money at 17%. Now, this is why if you go through the history of central banking, anytime a society makes usury legal, it's only a matter of time until it fails. Because you have one side of the house harvesting the other side of the house and eventually it collapses. And that's part of what we're looking at because remember this machinery can basically create an infinite amount of money and use that money in a variety of ways. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to grossly oversimplify to make the point. The fed, you know, basically created three trillion dollars at the beginning of the pandemic. This is part of the going direct reset. At the same time, the pandemic shut down whole sectors of the economy. And what that meant, the people who got that $3 trillion could buy up the assets of the shutdown economy for cheap. So in terms of disaster capitalism, it was fantastically profitable. It worked. And that's what we need to understand. We're talking about a machinery that, that the way the model is engineered, whether it's the black budget or the institutions with sovereign immunity, their ability to to gain and control all the assets on the planet is enormous 
And the last, you know, the last step is CBDCs and digital IDs, because then they have complete control of everybody 100% of the time. And then we also have to look at like who owns the Fed, because that has been like researched in the meantime, at least. I mean, I, I don't think that we have like really a lot of names, but we know that it's what well, that it's actually there was a FOIA in 2018 mm -hmm. that I had been told by the Fed that the number, the members who own stock and the percentages. Now, there, there's the stock of the individual banks is owned by the members, but they wouldn't disclose what you know which members own what percent so um so in 2018 there was a FOIA and they did disclose percentages in the New York Fed and in fact we have that up on our website in our SPAC wrap-up that we did um first quarter last year but so there is some information what they also won't disclose is what their members access to their data is because if you you know, if I had not a penny to my name, but you gave me access to all the data that the New York Fed has, you know, I could be a billionaire in, in relatively short order because it's the ultimate inside information. And so one of the questions I once asked all the public affairs officers at all 12 banks was, what is your policy about sharing your data with your members? Mm -hmm. And they wrote back and said that that policy is confidential. Wow, so prior knowledge, of maybe what's going to happen might be also like i don't know some trading deals or like uh, activities of of the like when the the interest rates are going to go up and so, these kind of things well one of the one of isn't. the fo folks who got in trouble at the fed was an economist who warned that there was something there was a problem before 911 and he got booted out wolfgang did you have a question Yes, I, I just imagine that this that money is only something we believe is there. Right. We just believe in money. Right. There are there are people writing numbers in books. Right. And 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 you there are people living on the land. Right. There are people working somewhere. And we they believe they believe and we all believe in this money. And we believe that if you give a piece of a hundred dollar this is this is worth that you, somebody works for several hours for it. So we believe in it. If we don't, if we stop, if we see we are betrayed by those people who can print as much money as they want. Right. This money is of no value anymore for normal people. Right. Because there are others who just can steal everything we have because they can print this money we believe in. Right. It's a harvesting machine. And one of the reasons they're moving to total control is because they know that you're going to figure out you don't need them. <laughs> yes. So if you if you look at the money machine, it's simply think of it as a a pump and dump machinery. And their goal is control of real assets, people, land, livestock. You know, they're looking to control real assets and the and the, the games they play with money is simply to get ownership and control of those real assets and to manage those real assets. Now, once we understand that the only thing that's real, the real wealth comes from people, it comes from education, it comes from land, it comes from growing crops, it comes from livestock. Once we're clear that money is simply a tool and it has absolutely no value, 
you know what what is what has value is real assets and the wealth we can create with it and that's what's real that's the day that we start to break away from the breakaways and we start to build our own systems now it is perfectly easy for us to create our own ways to transact and i can give you lots of ideas about how to do that but the number one most important thing we need to do if we're going to create our own currency barter and other transaction systems crypto any anything of those is what is needed and you're the perfect person to sort of understand this what is needed is the capability in local groups and areas and between local groups and areas to create governance and culture which can protect those systems and those people from sabotage from from divide and conquer and all the tricks that destroy organization. We don't have a financial problem on planet Earth. We have a governance problem. And the only solution that can solve a governance problem is a governance solution. And so the question is, when can we come together and build organizations that can withstand the gaslighting and the financial pump and dumping of their machinery? Because that is where to date we have not yet figured out how to build the organization the culture and the governance that can then do all the transaction and currency systems we need we don't we don't need them we don't need their currencies we don't need their management we don't need their we don't need them we can do it we can only do it if we can grow up and govern ourselves without being willing to be tricked and controlled by them there are, there are two other things we have to have in mind. They are media too, to communicate. Money is a medium to communicate. Right. But there is also science and knowledge that we know what happens. Right. And we are dependent on the media. And there is one other, a third thing. This is the, the use of power. Right. Who can use power? You know, Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. He was very powerful. He had he was able to buy some soldiers. With those soldiers, he went robbing some villages and he gave his soldiers what they robbed. Right. And they became more and more and they were robbing and robbing and robbing and going. He didn't have a shack. He didn't he could not write anything. He he just shared what they the, the, what they what they found and what they robbed. Right. So this was without this was without money. This was Real assets. <laughs> they were, right, they were exactly. Negoti- they were negotiating with. Them. They were right. getting power over a big part of the world. Right. But this, this is this is limited, and um, you, what they do now, they don't even give assets to people. But what the soldiers, they use power. They use violence. Right. Because they they think they hope that the money they get for it they may buy some house sometime from it or whatever right so right so they call it the central banking warfare i call it the central banking warfare model so the central banks print money and then the military and enforcement make sure people take the money and a lot of that enforcement is increasingly covert or invisible so a lot of the a lot of the most powerful weaponry is invisible and that's part of what we're up to i mean think about it somebody's trying to kill us and meantime we're inviting surveillance and invasive technology controlled by those people into our homes and lives and giving smart kids smartphones to our kids which is giving those people direct access to our kids minds yeah 
You, so, you think this, because this PSYOP is uh, the most powerful weapon now existing, we, they just are selling for cheap money or they're even give, making it a present somewhere where there is war, like in Ukraine. They're just giving away right. weapons. They don't need it anymore because right. they can govern us. They can have this control grip with us, grid with us, without any steel weapon or explosives. They do well, if, just you can, the, if, you, if you can control somebody's mind, that's a much cheaper way yes. to wage warfare. Yes, right. there's no explosion anymore. Well, you know, some of us are very difficult to control, so they use physical force, too. <laughs> can, can I ask you yeah. that we had, uh, we talked to Whitney Webb about this uh, bank of uh -huh. uh, commerce, uh, commerce and um, I forgot its name. Do you remember like that? BCCI. So let, was, let me just give you one important piece of background. When I was in Washington, Harry Albright, uh, when when the U.S. portion first American of BCCI was seized by the Department of Justice. Um, the district of New the district attorney in New York appointed Harry Albright to be the chairman of the bank. He, he'd been a very successful banker and Harry brought me on the board. So I was part of the cleanup team on first American and as a result had to look at all the documentation in the in the process of coming on the board, I had to read thousands and thousands of pages of the all the documentation on their structure and what had happened. And uh, it was remarkable because everything that was going on had to have been approved at the highest levels of the White House, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury. It was all a sanctioned operation. Wow! And was that is there a connection to the uh, Bank of International Settlement? Um, you know, I don't know what the relationship was between BCCI and, and the BIS. I never looked into that, so I don't know what the relationship was. You know, it's very possible there was one, but I have no idea. Because it seems maybe, or just a question, could it be that the Bank of International Settlement somehow took over, like once that other bank closed down to some extent? So, or? so here's what I think. I think that that the, the growth of the black budget was making it very, very difficult to keep the overt side of the house from understanding what was going on. It, it, it became very hard to manage all the money laundering through private means. And I think a series of actions were taken to move more of the hidden system of the, and finance and black budget on budget in the United States. That's part of what the Patriot Act was about and 9-11 was about, engineering what you needed to do to bring a lot more of the covert side on budget and make it you know, clearly through governmental pipelines. And I think doing what they did at the BIS was part of that. So they, you know, BCCI was such a mess and such a problem cleaning up that what they did through the BIS and the Fed going in is my guess is what they did was they created a much more sophisticated, much bigger pipeline because there's no way. I mean, when I looked at all the money that was disappearing from HUD, that's trillions of dollars. You can't launder that through pizza restaurants. Do you know what I mean? And so, so always the big question for me was how in the world are they laundering and moving this much money 
secretly. Now, some of it was on the Middle East wars. Some of it was through things like Enron is my guess, but the BIS is the only thing that makes sense because you're talking about way too much money. You're talking, you know, I, I've told you the story, I think, of when the largest, the head of the president, the largest pension fund in America said to me in fiscal, was in spring of 1997, he said, you don't understand, they've given up on the country. They're moving all the money out starting in the fall. Basically, that's what happened. The 21 trillion signifies a movement of money you know, so 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 you're issuing treasury debt, you're getting money, and then the money disappears out of the back door. And it's interesting. Yeah, but in 2017, when Dr. Skidmore did the complete survey and found that the number of undocumentable adjustments was 21 trillion dollars, that was the exact amount at the time of the official treasury debt outstanding. So you know, you issue debt, and then the money disappears. For all I know, Vivian, they've created an endowment which is big enough to run a global government on a private endowment, you know, parked at the BIS. All those who participated in this big business, BCI, uh, they, there are several, uh, several parties who are who put the money there, which was laundered. It's not one person. It's not. There are several shareholders who who have, who put the money there, which is hidden now. Right, but, but he, they, I can imagine that they don't have all the same interests, that they're struggling against each other, who has the most influence. Or do you think they are unified? It's one block. No, I, I, think think they're, I think there's constant cooperation and competition, cooperation, competition. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons they took so much of it into sort of governmental or central bank pipes is to stop the competition and keep the competition in check. Mm. But I think you know, as you know, I think they're going to fail. And I think it's going to be the the more you centralize power, the more the competition gets out of hand and impossible to manage. Yes. Aren't they now just spreading their money now to India and to other countries, Brazil and other countries or Ecuador or so where they influence governments and they give them shares of their money just to 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 widen their possibilities? So I think there was a decision made in the 94 when the Fed went into the BIS to rebalance the global economy. So rebalance the gold inventories, rebalance the GDP. And you're going from a model where you have the first world taking advantage of the third world to instead a model where you're globalizing and bringing the third world up, but basically reducing and wiping out the middle class in your own countries. So it, they changed the model in a very fundamental way. And if you want to understand what they did and how they did it, there is a marvelous video recording of Sir James Goldsmith in 1994, who came to the United States and tried to persuade Congress not to adopt the Uruguay Round of GATT and institute the World Trade Organization. And he gave an interview with Charlie Rose where he, he laid out why as an economic matter What we were doing was insane and it would only end in heartbreak. And he was dead on 100% right. And he describes everything that's happening today. Oh, gee, please give us the link. It would be great. To... Yeah. It's Sir James Goldsmith. If you just go to Solari and put in Sir James Goldsmith, okay. you'll find it. But it's a perfect example. That interview and my online book, Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, will both document and explain to you 
that when this was done in the mid-90s, when the financial coup began, they knew exactly what was going to happen. Everything that's happening today, you know, in terms of conceptually, they knew it would happen. They knew their only way to deal with the finances in the United States and Europe was to bring down life expectancy. So the U.S., as soon as the U.S. gave up on the budget deal in 1995, they started taking multiple actions designed to lower life expectancy. It was a budget imperative. You either get people to put more in the retirement savings, and if they refuse to do that and you can't achieve financial responsibility, your only way to balance the budget is to lower life expectancy. And they did it on cue. Literally the next month after the budget deal, they did two things. They started the predatory lending at HUD and they approved OxyContin at the FDA. And, and the poor neighborhoods were suddenly the target of predatory lenders and pill mills all targeting the same communities and cleaning them out. It was very now successful. The, now they have the tool, the WHO, to do all these jobs. And now they, you know this, the WHO, I just said it before, the WHO has this non-communicable diseases has, as a goal now, as the next goal. And with 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 dealing with those non-communicable diseases, with uh, with food and with heart pressure, with blood drug, blood pressure, and all the such stuff, they will they will make programs, and they will tell the people what is normal, and they will tell the people what to do to 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 be healthy, in the way WHO uh, understands it. So having this having this leverage, having this WH WHO tool. You can you may very easily reach this goal right. and, and life expectancy is is going down. So here's here's the biggest danger to me of the WHO. So you've got, you know, biowarfare labs now engineered all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. And all you need is one or more if you look at the money that's being pumped out in Washington in the United States. All the people who helped engineer the pandemic are getting big budget increases and big raises, you know, and the message is good work. And the people who don't want to play doing this are getting cleaned out. You know, they're building an infrastructure for the next big thing. But a lot of this is organized under biodefense. Mm -hmm. So yeah. all they need is a is a bio warfare false flag. And then they can use the who and get off to the races because they're not protecting you, you know, they're they're not trying to control you. They're not trying to destroy your sovereignty. They're trying to protect you from the boogeyman. So, you know, Santa Claus is going to attack us with a bioweapon. And 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 then the who kicks in because they're just trying to coordinate protection against Santa Claus, right? Yes. Right. Very important, yes. Right. So if you look at all the money if you look at all the money in pandemic preparedness, because, you know, we're all worried about the WHO amendments, but if you look at what they did in the National Defense Authorization Act, there's massive money going into pandemic preparedness. But I think it's it's they're going to play the biodefense game because that's how they avoid all the questions on another pandemic. One of the amendments is that WHO can decide has a hand on, on the national money even, can can go to the national money and say, we need this, we take it from you because we need it. WHO will be allowed to do that. And if one state doesn't do it, other states would be allowed to, to use force. This is all, it's all in those amendments. Right. And so, other states just 
say the NATO or whatever, who will come and, and take the money, you know, or do, or do right. it. Yeah. Right. So this is, there are a couple of issues this is going to come down to. One is taxation without representation. And right now, interestingly enough, in the United States, if you look at the powers under the Constitution, the citizens still technically have the ability to say, you know, uh, we're going to escrow our tax dollars because you're not obeying the financial management laws and you're spending the money illegally and money's disappearing. Um, but interestingly enough, the states under the Constitution, the, the states, you know, essentially bequeathed upon the government certain powers in the Constitution, but all the other powers are reserved for, to the states. The federal government cannot give away a power that is reserved to the states. And so I think one of the places where there's going to be a real legal, a very interesting legal war is the federal government can't give away the state's powers and the states have the right and the ability to take it back. Yeah. You know, the Wyoming tried to pass the law. Somebody put in a law in Wyoming that said that the CDC and the WHO will have no jurisdiction within the borders of Wyoming. You know, expect to see a lot more of those kinds of laws. Yeah, the federal structure may just dissolve then if, if something like that happens. Well, here's the interesting thing. Wyoming has the Constitution. The feds have the satellites. And the question is, which is going to win? So we have a question from the audience. What can every normal citizen do to actively go against uh, this um, this agenda? Um, and so to stop and or slow down this um, the process of this hostile takeover. So there, there are many, many things you can do. But what I would suggest you do, the first thing you can do is use cash. Dial back the digital systems. In a perfect financial system, we would have a balance of digital and analog. You know, you would want both, both is healthy. They're trying to go to 100% digital. They need 100% digital to lock down control. So you want to dial back the digital, not because digital is bad. It doesn't have to be bad, but because we don't want them to have 100% digital control. So take everything analog that you possibly can. You know, leave your smartphone in the car. You know, use cash and get talking to the local businesses and enterprises about using cash. You know, let's make cash fashionable and sexy again. So we, we absolutely want to promote cash. If you go to Solari, I have an article called I want to stop CBDCs. What can I do? You can pick it up on a search. It's real easy. And it's got a list of like 15 items of things you can do. The, the first thing you should do is look at that and just do the one that moves you. You know, do the one that's energ energizing for you. Do the one that works for you. There's a ton of things you can do. One of the things you can do, going back to what Wolfgang and I were talking about with real assets, is make sure you have plenty of local fresh food you support your local farmers, you know, whether it's food, water, energy, shelter. There was a German village a while ago that, you know, built their own energy system and was selling energy into the grid. So whether it's food, water, shelter, energy, make sure you have plenty of provision locally on a decentralized basis so these guys can't corner you. Because I'm telling you, we don't need their money. We need food, clothing, shelter, energy. So anyway, take a look at that article. There's a ton of things to do and never believe it's hopeless. It's not hopeless at all. If you look at how few people there are who are running and engineering the system, 
they can't control all the real assets unless we help them. And right now we're the one who's building the control grid. We have the power to just stop. That's the funny thing about this. No. It's it's I, remarkable how much wealth, explosive wealth can be created if we just reverse the central control. I think you just gave a price to someone in Southern Germany who made the, who, well, the village <laughs> made its own slaughterhouse. Wasn't oh, it, that's, wasn't there the, I thought that was Austria. No, it was Austria. Oh, maybe. Oh, 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 I, I don't want to say so. Somewhere <laughs> close to the Alps, yes. Yes, it was in the Alps. It was Tyrol, but they were oh, yeah. Austrian. Yeah, believe, maybe so. Austria, yes. Yeah, I they were here it, of the week a couple of weeks ago. I find it great, yes. <laughs> and such things. And yet there is there is an event now where, where you have such uh, children health defense. They make a Congress now soon yeah. where farmers farmers are telling their experience and sharing their experience how to be independent, how to become independent right. from, from those big gi giants and, and right. yes. It's right. very Absolutely. it's very good. It's a good development. Yeah. Yes, it is. And I have another question from the audience um, is the connection between the um, the bank and maybe these asset managers or companies like BlackRock and, and Vanguard and so on. Do you see some sort of connection? If so, like who do you think is like uh, leading the uh, is, is like in control, basically? In, in case we know there, I don't think any of the people we're looking at are in control. Um, you know, if you're if you're Vanguard or BlackRock, you're basically, you know, managing a piece of the whole thing and you can't get separate from the whole thing. So, you know, if the central banks are pumping, you're going up, you know, you're you're playing with the pump. One of the challenges for the asset managers is we've ballooned the the global financial system with a huge number of speculative assets. And now the debt is growing faster than the GDP, which means at some point the debt's going to be in real trouble. You know, in other words, think of the think of the planet like a house and we have an asset and we have a mortgage and we have insurance and then we have equity. OK, and if you keep growing the debt. So if the house is worth a thousand euro and your mortgage is is 500 euro. But then we start growing the debt to the, you know, it's 5,000 euro and, and 10,000, you know, up, up, up. And, and it becomes many multiples of the value of the house. Something's got to give. And so you're trying to keep these speculative bubbles floating. You know, what, what, <laughs> this is why they're going to bribe all those governments, because they have two sources of money. One, the private investors and the other, so the tax players. And when you when you have the government and like Mrs. Van der Leyen, who has all the tax money of Europe, just spending it for some some so-called vaccines, uh, this is not a private. This is not a private uh, investment, but right. this is it's a second source of of, of money. Well, it's blowing a, up, it's, it's, blowing it's up the bubble with tax right, money. Right. It's a rigged economy and you're just trying to keep the rigging up. So. Um, I'm trying to give you an example. Let me tell you the problem that the leadership has and why they want to go to total control. So I'm going to tell you the story of a little town in Louisiana. Um, there was a little town in Louisiana and the city council was trying to be persuaded to do another big Fed infrastructure grant. And there was a city councilman who felt, you know, we've done a lot of these Fed grants and now we've got a whole lot of stuff we have to take care of and it's not economic, so we don't want to do this. 
but the guys who were going to make big fees on the on the infrastructure project were pushing for it. So we hired a wonderful municipal engineer called Chuck Marone to come in and look at their infrastructure and and their economy and their municipal budget and see whether or not this made sense. So Chuck came in and he looked at how much infrastructure they built with all these federal grants and he said, if you are going to just maintain your current infrastructure properly, according to engineer standards, you will have to raise your property taxes from an average of $1,500 per property owner to 8,000. Mm -hmm. Now, that's because they've built a federal obligation way beyond the private economy's ability to handle it. And, and because we've now created this huge bubble that as far bigger and more expensive than the private economy can handle, one of the reasons being that this bubble is doing things with organized crime to destroy the productivity of the fundamental economy. You know, the day of reckoning is upon us and that's what the reset is. The going direct reset is, the, is, is, is facing the fact that you've, you've printed all of this money and bubbled the economy and the fundamental productivity is not there and you've got to you've got to bring in certain changes to fundamentally change that productivity whether it's reduce the population or bring in breakthrough energy or there are many different ways you can approach it but you can't keep going the way you're going the debt growth model is over and you need to reset and change if the german government goes on to spend the money they don't have like that there are all those soldiers policemen and clerks when they get old, they want their pension. And they they have become policemen and they have become clerks because they are calculating they will get their good life when they are old. They won't get. There is no money. Like in well, Greece, we we experienced it. We, they, we experienced it in Greece. It was the same okay. here. But here here's the thing. If I illegally take the assets out of your pension and move them underground into the black budget, they still exist. They're there. And legally, I have a right to them. And in, they replace them in my pension fund with all sorts of funny money from the sovereign government that is now imploding. You know, you can think there's no money, but in fact, I would say, you know, they have a right to those assets which still exist. So I would say, one, there are assets, there is money. But the other thing I would say is if we decided to run the economy so it could be productive, we could create a lot more wealth. So if you allow organized crime, you know, if you allow children to run the country, you're going to get kindergarten. But if you allowed adults to run the country, if you had good governance, you know, there's a great deal that could be done. The problem is you need a meritocracy and all of the people in leadership positions. I assure you, the moment we decide to have a good governance system, all the neocons are going to not only lose their jobs, but they're going to end up in prison, right? So you can see why they're not going to vote for for that. We we were in Germany. We were always speaking about Generationenvertrag. You know, the, this is contracts between generations, children, uh -huh. adults, and old people, and right. we all have to care for each other. We are right. responsible that children can live well, that the adults don't have to work too much for that, and that right. the old people still can live well. And this was a, such a this this always gave the, the guidelines for for good politics. 
This mm-hmm. is the idea, the ideal we were we educated, which what should be, but they just uh, have forgotten. I think mm, we haven't all forgotten. <laughs> so, but we can basically only stop this this kind of activity once we have um, regained power. Because otherwise, it's just going to continue. I mean, like, I mean, you so know, like the beauty. It doesn't, as a theoretical matter, all we need to do is walk away and build elsewhere. If you look at who's building the control grid, we are all getting up in the morning, going to work and engineering the control grid. The day the people who are going to be the losers in the system say, you know something, I'm not going to build your control grid. I'm going to walk out and go to work on building real assets in my community or whatever. I mean, we're we're building this. They can't do it without us. We're building right. our own digital concentration camps. All we need to do is stop. And it doesn't take everybody. If, you know, if a small percentage just start walking away and make it fashionable to walk away, make it fun to walk away, make it interesting to walk away, you know, signal the message, it's not hopeless at all because we are many and they are few, then, you know, I, I will tell you, I believe they're going to fail. And I think the reason we have to walk away and start building is I want something to be there when they do fail. Catherine, it's so important what you do. And you give so good examples. And I am very sad that they, they are not published in German more. <laughs> We, we need. <laughs> you know something? My online book is in German. Hmm. If you go to Dylan Reed and Co., I'll send you the link. But the Dylan Reed book is in German, and it explains okay. a lot of this. So yeah, you should have prepared one ex one 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 book to show now. One book to show. <laughs> well, you know, I tried to can, publish can... it in a hard copy, but I got threatened, and then the last time I tried to publish it in hard copy, they threatened somebody in my family, so I backed off. Viviana, we, we, we think over how we can publish, how we can 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 help to, that it be published in Germany. Yeah, I think that's a, good, that's a very good idea. Okay, well, it's, I'll send it to you, it's just do it, you know. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, this, this whole overview, I mean, it's a little bit frightening, but then I think it's also good to look at the details so you, you get a better understanding of what's going on in the world because you are, you know, if you don't understand the, the enemy, let's say, then it's very hard to, to take the, the right measures against these kind of right. the control grid, as you said. Right. So I believe that uh, I used to have a pastor would say, if we can face it, God can fix it. You know, we're each one person. We can only do what we can do. The funny thing is if we all just do what we can do, the possibilities are immense of what can happen in a positive direction. The thing that has stopped us, you know, I said the inability to organize, that's one of the things we have to figure out. But the biggest thing to stop us is we won't face what's really going on. And that you know, the facing it and and the sort of sense of overwhelming and the grief is the doorway we walk through to find real solutions. Yes. Yeah. I like that is if you can face it, God can, God fix, can it. fix it. Right. It's way too big for me. It's up to the big guy. So but I will do my piece. So. Yeah. Well, I think the force is with us anyway. So. Uh, <laughs> We should, uh, yeah, like, 
it's yeah it's great i think it's always so enlightening when you um give us more information about these i mean to a lot of people very dark or like uh, not easy to understand um topics like this financial system and and all the shenanigans going on there but i think it's really important and i think you bring it to light in a in a very accessible way i think you know it's it's easy to follow what you what you tell us so i think it's good helps understanding so and this is why i love what you guys do and what the what you've done it's because we have to integrate all these different areas you know we're all in our lanes so wolfgang's in health and you're in law and i'm in money and you know we have to get enough of a common language and integrate and rock and roll together that we get a good map of what's going on and that i think that's what the pandemic has helped us do yeah it's not really it's in your face now it's it's become so so much clearer and uh, yeah yeah fantastic catherine thanks so much for sharing okay, all this thank and you we have to put all the links thank into the, the new archive that we have so people can really access it everything like immediately i think we at some point hopefully we're going to be able to translate the archive also into english but i think for now okay. it's it's um yeah we i mean there's a lot of people uh, to, who speak english anyway so right. i think a lot of people are going to have a chance to look at that in detail Thanks. Okay, well, Thanks so I'll much. I'll send these links and have a wonderful day. And don't forget, next week we're celebrating the fact that Wolfgang is a hero. <laughs> That's great. I think he's a hero. I agree. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah, das war ja spannend. Also wieder sehr viel gelernt und uh, erfahren und das Bild wird immer klarer. Es ist schon bemerkenswert. Picture is getting clearer by the day. Wolfgang, so I hope soon we will be able to welcome you here again. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, I'm coming back to Germany, uh, some events in uh, end of March and April. We are at the end of the session. Um, and uh, again, you just uh, had your birthday not too long ago. So now in Cora Publico, I'd like to say here at this point uh, that you have been so enlightening for us with all your refreshing insights. You have helped a lot of people. We wish you all the very best for your birthday. I grow ever younger by what I learn here. It's really great. Yeah, yeah you are sort of like the spider in the web of understanding and enlightenment. Well, as long as I'm not a wacko in the um, uh, the web of uh, knowledge, well, that's fine. Yes, we're at the end of our session, and I thought I think it was very, very exciting to do it. Quite moving too. Um, it uh, was very touching, also talking to the gentleman who did the funeral speeches. And I can only ask you to help us uh, financially so that we can carry on with the good work. And uh, we want to be more concentrated, more condensed. I'm so happy that we now have the archive so that you can access the information when you need it. And uh, of course, we want to make sure that we're well on our web, that we get our own website. And uh, uh, YouTube has 
again after a short moment of joy has kicked us out again. So a lot of information uh, that supposedly we're divulging here is false information. I mean, that's uh, not really the reason that they gave us. So far, we're actually waiting for any any proper statements there. But in that spirit, I should like to um, wish you all a great and happy Friday, a good weekend, uh, fruitful, and I hope to see you all.